Hi, and thank you for joining us today for our virtual gold conference. What I love most about the virtual format is the convenience. You can watch it at home, you can watch it in your office, you can watch it live, or if you can't watch it live, you can watch it on the weekend when it's convenient for you. And if you don't want to watch us, you can listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. So be sure to subscribe to our channel, Bloor Street Capital, and also follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Now on with the conference. With inflation at 40-year highs, the U.S. Federal Reserve has lifted interest rates nine times in the past year, and this has caused a financial crisis within the regional banking system. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank have been shut down, and Credit Suisse was forced to merge with UBS, all because of the aggressive stance taken by the Federal Reserve. With the financial system coming under pressure, the Fed will be forced to stop lifting interest rates, and this will lead to a lower U.S. dollar, a reacceleration of inflation, and a much higher gold price. Gold is already up over 10% on the year and is poised to make new all-time highs, and many gold stocks are up 30% or more on the year. How high does the gold price go in this precarious economic environment, and what gold stocks can you invest in? To answer these questions, we have assembled some amazing speakers and companies for you to learn from, beginning with John Hathaway of Sprott Asset Management USA, followed by Paul Wong of Sprott Asset Management, John Reed of the World Gold Council, Elisa Cochran of Copernic Global, Daniela Dimitrov, Mining Executive and Director. Our corporate presenters include David Smith of Ignico Eagle, Tyron Brettenbach of Aris Mining, George Burns of Eldorado Gold, and Andrea Freebro of Kinross Gold. As a reminder, we will have an open chat on the right-hand side of the screen. Say hello or ask a question or leave a comment. Remember, we are trying to build a community of investors, and the more you engage, the more successful we will all be. We will be running polls throughout the conference to get your views on gold and gold equities, so keep an eye out for them. I want to thank our corporate sponsor, Sprott Inc., a global leader in precious metals and energy transition investments. Check out their website to learn more about their many products. I hope you enjoy the conference. Hi, John. Thank you very much for joining us today. You've been managing money for many years now, and you've always had a focus on gold and gold equities. But before we get your views on gold, I want to start with the economy. The Fed has increased interest rates nine times in the past year, the most aggressive tightening ever. And what damage has the Fed done to the economy? And, and what are your views on this current economy? Yeah, well, Jimmy, the, the, the damage it has yet to be seen. Uh, a lot of financing was done in the day and age of zero interest rates. And they're simply incapable of living in a world with 5% interest rates. So the cost of carry has gone from nothing to let's, let's say 5%. That's gonna, there are gonna be a lot of bodies floating to the surface. Uh, so my view of the economy would be that we are headed into a rather unpleasant, uh, maybe steep, maybe long recession that, uh, uh, will lead to a complete reversion to the Fed's old playbook of money printing, zero interest rates, yield curve control, uh, balance sheet expansion, all of the above. And I want to ask you about what's happening with the U.S. regional banking system. Uh, because of this very 
aggressive tightening that the Fed has done. It's created a lot of pain within the system. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank have both been wiped out. What are your views on what's happening with the U.S. banking system? And is this because of what's happening with the Fed increasing interest rates so aggressively? Yeah, there are two problems. One is uh, the, the assets of the banking system, and this is not just Silicon Valley Bank, which was probably the most egregious example. Uh, but uh, the 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 a major investment category is government bonds, and uh, the carrying value of those bonds, particularly if they're uh, more than uh, three or four years, and a lot of them are, uh, decline with a rise in interest rates. So. Uh, uh, that means that even though they're quality assets, they can only be sold if necessary to meet liquidity needs at a loss. But the other problem, which hasn't been talked about, and I think is even the bigger problem, is that the quality of the credit, the credits uh, that these banks are invested in, and you can talk about wide swaths of the economy, commercial real estate, uh, consumer loans, uh, just to name two, uh, are uh, uh, very much jeopardized in terms of the, the ability of the borrowers to service those loans by higher short-term interest rates. And, and what that means is that uh, uh, credit uh, will, is, 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 under, is, is under trouble. You know, so bank Bank investments in government bonds, they're quality assets, but they, have, they can only be sold at a loss in today's world. But the worst, the bigger issue is that the, the credit side of the portfolio where banks have extended credit to all uh, sectors of the economy is, is much lower quality than it might have been a couple of years ago. So I think there'll be a, a lot more losses, a lot more bodies floating to the surface over the next year. And that's going to translate into a slower economy and probably a recession. And because of what's happening with the U.S. regional banking system, do you think this places the Fed in between a rock and a hard spot? They would like the increased rates further to, to quill inflation, but because of what's going on with the banking system and how fragile it is, they're forced to stop lifting rates or maybe lower rates? That, that, is, that is the question. Uh, the dynamic is that uh, uh, they believe, the Fed, that by raising interest rates, they will uh, moderate economic activity, cool the labor market, which is a lagging indicator, and slow the economy and bring us to a nice, soft landing. And I am of the school, and I think uh, Lawrence Summers would, has, has said it best, that we're going to have a wily coyote moment where uh, the coyote is chasing the roadrunner and suddenly he's out over the cliff in open space and we're gonna make a, a, a pancake landing on our face uh, that nobody expects. I kind of think that's where we're headed. John, this scenario you discuss is very bullish for gold. So now I wanna move the discussion toward gold and gold equities. You co-managed the Sprott Gold Equity Fund, and with gold performing so well on the year, I'm curious how the fund flows are. Are you seeing a lot of money come into the various funds? No, surprisingly not. Um, 
And it tells me that the sentiment for investing in precious metals is still quite subdued, which makes me think that the, the rally that we're in the midst of has plenty of legs and plenty of time before uh, we have to worry about uh, getting, getting too defensive. And I'm glad you brought that up because when I look at gold equities, they've never been in better shape. They're producing large amounts of cash flow. Many of these producers are, have buybacks underway. They're paying out dividends. They have strong balance sheets, but yet they're trading at steep discounts to where the gold price is. When was the last time you saw such a wide valuation gap? And why is the market not recognizing the value with these gold producers? Well, to the, the first to the first question, I have never seen the valuations as compelling as they are, and I've been doing this for over 20 years now, probably going on 25. Hard to believe, but that's the case. Why are they so cheap? I think partly because we've been through a very tough period, you know, from the previous peak in 2011 until today. Really, we've had periods where we've had rallies. But overall, I would say gold has been, uh, and, and mining stocks have been uh, disappointing in terms of performance. Given all the fundamentals that we could talk about, and we don't have time to do it, but the, the super bullish fundamentals for gold. Um, so I think you've had uh, uh, kind of, um, weariness on the part of investors about hearing the bull case for gold and for gold mining stocks to uh, not perform as expected. Uh, and you can see that. The, I mean, the analytical input from the sell side is, is uh, very cynical, very snake-bitten. Uh, no one's really championing the idea of a bull case for gold. I mean, you, know, you look at the, the, the price decks that uh, the sell side uses for um, forward uh, uh, cash flows, and they typically take the spot price today and, they, and, it, and it starts going down. But the gold price has gone up 8% compounded for over 40 years since uh, Nixon closed the gold window, actually 50 years. And, uh, and yet the analysts use a declining gold price. It just doesn't make any sense. So I think uh, I could go into it more, but I think uh, for purposes of this discussion, you don't have anyone championing gold stocks as a way to position uh, an investment client or a portfolio for what I believe will be a breakout in the gold price to new all-time highs. Think about this, the, the, the current gold price at 2000, believe me, it's not getting any, any headlines. I mean, I, I look at the news media, read the papers and look at the, look at the flow of um, uh, information and nobody's excited, which I think is fantastic. For gold to, to trade um, on an inflation adjusted basis at the previous peak, which was $800 40 years ago, uh, would be uh, 2,600, so 30% above where we are. 
you will not see a single research piece on a gold stock that even uh, uses, they don't even use $2,000. I mean, they're probably using it now because they have to. But, but that, you know, and I didn't mean to take up so much time on that. But I think that is why gold stock valuations are so, so depressed and why I think there's so much upside uh, once people get the idea that we, gold actually belongs not, not just at 2000 but maybe at 2500 and you raise up you raise a very good point about people getting behind it because I think this is one of the things that really propelled Bitcoin was that there were so many well-known investors that got behind it, including Michael Saylor and Paul Tudor Jones and many others. And to your point, we haven't seen that at all with gold. You really don't see it. There's no. Uh, I mean, I was talking to a friend the other day, and, and they, he said, "Do you know any?" Active, active gold managers, and I said, there, there are two or three, but frankly, you know, I won't use his name, we're dinosaurs. There, there's nobody out there that sponsors and advocates um, exposure to this investment idea. Um, and as you know, um, gold, gold mining stocks have enormous leverage to a better gold price environment. There's, very, there's almost nobody that I can think of that has any kind of following. I may have one follower on Twitter, but that's probably the max. Uh, there's nobody out there that of the stature that you're talking about that are that are behind. And, and you know, I think that'll change. John, you've been managing money for many years now, and you've seen many cycles. We have so many concerns both at home and, and abroad. We have the ongoing war with Russia and in Ukraine. There's ongoing tension between China and Taiwan. We have uncertainty in the U.S. banking system. Inflation's at 40-year highs. What's your take on this current situation? And, and I'm curious how it compares to what we saw in the early 2000s or during the financial crisis of 08, 09. Well, I, I, um, you mentioned all the, you know, a lot of things. Um, uh, you know, we're probably headed to some sort of repeat of uh, the global financial crisis. Maybe it's not going to be exactly the same, but certainly um, we're not out of it by a long shot. Um, there are the geopolitical issues that you mentioned. I don't go there because I don't really, you know, I'm not qualified. I don't, don't like to get into things like that. But they're, you know, certainly they have open-ended potential for um, a higher gold price. But let me just, the biggest thing that I would like to boil it down to is, is the valuation of the U.S. dollar. Everything is based off of, the, of, of, of that currency. And um, I, I, I read in Grant's couple weeks ago, which is a great resource, that the, uh, the people that calculate the consumer price index have revised it 25 times since 1982, I think it was, so 40 years. And in all but four cases, the revisions resulted in a lower reading for the CPI. And that just tells me that um, the CPI is a bad measure of, and most people take it as, 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 as gospel, uh, 
but the 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 dollar is is worth much less today than we think it is. And as these things come together, uh, I, I believe that it's 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 place in in commerce and in international trade. It'll it'll still be there. You can't do without it. But there will it will be uh, the shelf space that it occupies will be less. So the valuation will go down, and that's sort of the inverse of a higher gold price. And you know I think it really all comes down to that. The dollar is still overvalued. Uh, and um, I think events that you talked about, that you, you alluded to, will result in actions by foreign governments, actions by the Federal Reserve to depreciate uh, uh, the dollar further. And that's another way of saying that inflation, which the Fed is on this sort of crusade to, to, to squash, of course, they caused it in the first place. Uh, you know, as, as Jim Grant says, that their uh, chief um, arsonist and, and, and chief firefighter at the same time. Um, so they caused the problem, and now they're trying to fix it, uh, and they won't fix it. They won't be able to without creating so much damage to the economy that we'll be back off onto a playbook of money printing, balance sheet expansion, and and you name it, and and huge federal deficits. So. Uh, we haven't even gone to the uh, fiscal side of the equation, but that is, again, uh, if we had more time, uh, very, very bullish for the gold out. So if I can summarize your views, the U.S. financial system is very fragile. And in order to remedy this, the Fed is forced to cut rates in an inflationary environment. And doing so will send the dollar lower, but gold higher. Couldn't say it better. And I'm going to put you on the spot now. We have a Fed meeting come up coming up in early May and another one in June. What's your take? You know, it's a, it's 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 a nothing burger, frankly. I mean, they're going to raise rates probably, and you know, the more they if they they sort of ratchet rates up by whatever they're going to do, 25 basis points a meeting, it's just going to you know increase the potential damage to all these people that got the carry trade. John, as we wrap up, you are a prolific writer. If an investor would like to hear more about your thoughts or learn more about gold and, and the economy, where can they go? Go to the uh, Sprott website and uh, everything I've said, along with uh, my colleagues who also are, are quite prolific in, in their output, there's, there's a wealth of information if you just go to the website to learn more about uh, our views on precious metals and, and other things in, in, the hard, in the world of hard assets. John, that was a very insightful conversation and I wanna thank you for spending time with us today and I look forward to future conversations. Once again, thank you. Thanks, Jimmy, all the best.
Hi, David. Thank you very much for joining us today. Agnico is the third largest gold producer in the world with 11 producing mines globally. But much of the future growth will come from the Canadian operations. And this is where I want to focus, beginning with Malartic. Now that Agnico owns 100% of Malartic, what was the annual production in 2022 and what was the all-in sustaining cost? Yeah, well, thanks, Jimmy. First of all, thank you for having me here today. It's a real pleasure to be back. Uh, Malartic is, in fact, one of the most important operations uh, in Canada, of course, but also for the company as a whole, as we remain very focused on Canada. And the production there last year was about 715,000 ounces. Uh, cost structure, excellent, $663 per ounce on a cash cost basis and all-in sustaining of 856. So one of the largest and lowest cost operations in the world, uh, most certainly Canada as well. And a big part of the Malartic story is one of growth associated with Odyssey. And as a reminder to our viewers, Malartic is a very large open pit operation. The Odyssey project is going to take an underground. Can you just provide an overview of exactly what's happening with Odyssey? Yeah, what, what's going on there is the Malartic pit is depleting over the next five years or so. And we're going underground to the east. At uh, It's actually several deposits. We call them Odyssey, but it's Odyssey. East Malartic and East Goldie together. And so Malartic will in fact be transitioning from Canada's largest open pit mine a year ago and going to Canada's largest underground mine. Uh, in fact, the, the grade is approximately triple from the underground, but we'll be mining it at about one third of the rate. So the gold production should remain about the same. But what's interesting about that is uh, because we're going to be processing it at about a third of the rate, it's a 60,000 ton per day mill. And that means we're going to have excess capacity of about 40,000 tons per day. And that will allow us to bring other sources of ore into that big hungry mill. And I think just a tremendous, tremendous opportunity with very low capital intensity because the mill is already there. And it will allow us to probably actually increase the production through that mill as we put uh, some of our own ore in there and potentially even do some toll milling for other companies in the region. Interesting. And a big part of developing Odyssey is the shaft construction. Maybe you can just provide a update on what's happening there. Yeah, so the head frame and all the sinking equipment are, are built, uh, ready to roll. Uh, the main surface infrastructure is also built and the actual shaft sinking has just begun. So pushing this forward as we speak and, and all of that excess mill capacity is why we're so excited about it, but it's also the future growth of the asset. Uh, the exploration potential is just tremendous. Uh, we're still extending, especially to the east, uh, especially in that parallel zone, East Goldie, uh, it just keeps getting larger and some of the best intersections we've had are, are recent intersections. So uh, very, very excited about that potential. That's a great overview of Malartic. Another asset that was acquired with the Yaman acquisition was an asset called Wasamac. Maybe you can just provide an update of what you're going to do with this asset. 
Yeah, so Wasimax is pretty exciting as well because of its proximity to that Hungry Mill at Malartic. It is just down the Trans-Canada Highway from the Malartic Mill. It, when we acquired it from Yamana, it was already at the feasibility stage. It was about 2.2 million ounces at about two and a half grams per ton. And it, it is surface material, so um, it's got tremendous potential to go into that Malartic Mill and again, back to the, the grade part of it, the Malartic mill is currently from the open pits mining about one gram per ton. And so Wasimac at two and a half grams per ton, um, pretty good sweetener there and gives us more confidence that over time, we'll probably be able to actually increase gold production from Malartic, partly because of Wasimac. And there's some other properties in the area, uh, the old Camflow mine, the old LTA property, uh, just to name a couple. And then those are ones we own. You could also get into uh, that toll milling discussion again, and there are several other deposits not owned by us. I want to move on and discuss Detour. Detour is the largest gold mine in Canada. And to justify this statement, we need to quantify that. What was total annual production in 2022 at Detour? And what was the all-in sustaining cost? Yeah, so... Detour was 732,000 ounces last year. Um, I actually misspoke earlier. It was 2021 that Malartic was the largest producer in Canada, and now it is Detour as of 2022. Uh, that was at $647 per ounce cash cost and 965 all in sustaining cost. So again, very, very competitive, uh, very large asset. And what's exciting at Detour is the potential to actually drive that production rate higher. Uh, we're coming out with studies and plans this year that are going to help us describe how we think we could potentially get detour even to a million ounces per year. Yeah, that would be significant growth. And, and in order to get to a million ounces a year, a big part of this would be exploration work that you're gonna be doing. Maybe you can just touch on that. Yeah, certainly. It, it's actually a few different parts. There's mill optimization, uh, but there's also expansion of throughput. I think last year the uh, throughput was about 26 million tons of ore. Uh, we're able to operate already, uh, we know because we've done it for extended periods, at about 28 million tons on an annualized rate, but it's actually permitted to 32 million tons. So we think over time, we'll be able to get there as well, but you're right about the exploration. As we continue to do some in-pit drilling, uh, we're converting resource to reserve over time. But additionally, as we go to the west of this deposit, it has become very clear that there's an extensive underground deposit to the west and certainly at better grades as well. So it's a really great opportunity. And I think currently the detour mine life is about 30 more years based on what's been drilled off in reserve today. But I wouldn't be surprised if Detour was still operating 50 or 60 years from now. David, I wanna move on now and discuss the importance of jurisdiction. The importance of jurisdiction has been reinforced in the past year and an integral part of Agnico's success is staying away from high risk areas or countries. And maybe you can just tell us why Agnico has adopted this approach. 
We've always had this approach. Uh, we think mining is hard enough, even in a good jurisdiction like Canada. And so we don't have the skill sets to go to the most difficult parts of the world. And I think it's important to understand that. But additionally, I think the generalist investor really does shy away from political risk. And in 2013, the resource specialist kind of got blown out when the price of gold uh, cratered from $1,800 per ounce. And the generalist investor now has most of the money and I don't think they, they want a lot of political risk. So maybe coincidentally, our timing is fantastic. We're the third largest gold producer in the world, but we're also very, very focused in supportive, safe jurisdictions. So I think we have, um, I'm, I'm going to claim cleverly, maneuvered ourselves into a position where we're definitely one of the top three choices in the sector um, in terms of generalist interest. And it's kind of great because Barrick is off doing something completely different. They're going to the difficult parts of the world because they have the skill set to do so. Uh, Agnico is 80% of our gold production in Canada, uh, which I think is resonating with investors. And then Newmont somewhere in the middle. So in fact, investors have a choice amongst the three largest gold companies. We're all doing something a little bit different. And I, I think that's great. But again, we're, we're not going to change our strategy. We're in Mexico, Finland, Australia, and Canada. But 80% of it is, is in Canada. And frankly, that's on purpose. Uh, we like it here. I guess we're biased a bit because we're Canadians, but it's a great, great country to mine in, very supportive. And our operations in Ontario and Quebec support Nunavut very well. It's a great infrastructure. And we really, truly have a major competitive advantage mining in Canada. And I think that is also resonating with the largest investors. And I want to continue this with this point, but Agnico has 11 producing mines five of which are in the Abitibi gold belt area. And after the consolidation of Yamana's assets, Igniko's production from this region will be approximately 2 million ounces. Will Igniko continue to focus on this region going forward or would you consider other areas within Canada like the Golden Triangle, for example? Yeah, I think Canada is definitely um, our country and where we're interested in operating. Uh, heading west, I, I think that's absolutely something that could happen for this company. Uh, we already have investments in the Yukon in a joint venture with Kinross, for example. Um, but I, I really do believe that Canada is, we're the largest gold mining company in Canada by far. We produce, I think, more gold than the next eight companies combined in Canada. So yeah, I think we will continue to expand uh, but that, that region, that Abitibi gold belt of Ontario and Quebec is literally our home and the foundation of the company. I think what's most exciting for Igniko right now is that we're a larger company with a great balance sheet. We've got the skill set of any company, uh, but we've also got a great pipeline. And a lot of that pipeline is in Canada, as we discussed at Millardic and Detour, but also in the Curtin Lake camp in, in Nunavut with the Hope Bay deposit. We've got so much opportunity. I think we could be busy for the next 10 years without doing any M&A, uh, but also we have the ability to do M&A. So it's a great opportunity to just continue to drive this company forward. And 
you know, continue to grow the per share metrics that we're so proud of. And just given the size of Malartic and, and Detour and the importance of those two assets, would you consider selling off some of your other assets, the smaller assets in other countries? Yeah, that's a question we've had a lot more recently, and I think it's very logical. It is a larger portfolio of assets, and if you treat it like a portfolio, which I'm sure you should, you know, maybe if something new comes in that's higher quality, maybe something that is more mature or lower quality should go out the other end. So I think there is more appetite around here than there has ever been to that dis, uh, divestment, pardon me, um, concept. And the ones that are most obvious would be Australia. It's a single asset. Uh, as of today, we haven't found Swan Zone 2.0, you know, the very high grade part. So it does have a forecast of a declining gold production profile with a higher cost profile as a result. The Australians are actually very capable and also very optimistic that we're going to find the next high grade zone. But that's the one that it, it is way all over on its own. So the question is, do you use that as a springboard to do other things in Australia or do you sell it? And I guess you could say the same thing in Mexico. It used to be our highest margin business, but the gold mines are depleting. And we've now actually added a copper mine, which is great in a partnership with tech, uh, which is gonna keep our excellent, excellent team in Mexico busy. Uh, but that's another one. It's um, eventually, it's just gonna be a copper mine in Mexico. Uh, could that be sold? I, I don't know. We actually like copper. Uh, and then Finland, I, I don't know that we would sell Finland just because it's an asset that grows and grows and grows and grows over time. As we go to the north, especially in at depth where, and they, they even discovered a parallel structure now. So we're just finding lots more gold. I, I think like Detour, Kitala could very well be operating 50 years from now. Uh, I guess the, it's a very long answer to a short question, but the answer is maybe we would divest things, but we don't, we don't really want to because we like the people so much and we like the regions so much. So it's a, it's a hard one. So you just touched on the fact that you entered into an agreement with tech. You bought 50% of San Nicolas, which is a copper mine in, in Mexico. Is copper an area that you would like to grow? Is Would you consider acquiring assets, copper assets? Yeah, the way I personally think about this is not so much if it's, you know, it doesn't have to be copper, you know, it, it could be zinc, it could be whatever, frankly. If it's in our backyard and we have a true competitive advantage, then I think Agnico should be involved and exploit that competitive advantage because that creates the most value for the shareholders. Uh, the other angle is, would you want one of the largest mining companies in the world um, mining a zinc mine right beside one of your operations and probably stealing your employees and disrupting your supplier networks, et cetera, et cetera? And I think obviously the answer is no, you would prefer not to have that. So again, suggesting that if there are good assets in our backyard, we should be aware of them and probably be involved. And I think that's the way we're thinking right now, uh, just continue to exploit that competitive advantage. 
because arguably, because we have it, you could make a very competitive bid for some of these assets. And there are some of these assets literally in our backyard in uh, Ontario, Mexico, you mentioned, uh, also in Finland. Uh, there's you know, polymetallic in Finland and actually Australia for that matter too. So uh, we'll see, we'll see. It's, it's something we're working on, but it's not, it's not on the front burner at this point, uh, but it's something that I think if we do find a high quality asset, we would have to seriously consider it. I want to move on now and discuss your balance sheet and how you will allocate cash flow in this coming year. Are you going to continue to increase your dividend? Would you look at buybacks? Yeah, we have we have both of those tools, and it really depends on market conditions, of course. Um, I, I don't decide on the dividend, but we make recommendations to the board, and the recommendation to the board last quarter was margins are good, operations are good. Therefore, logically, dividends should stay the same. And that's really our strategy. We don't have an equation, and we never have. I think the problem with equations is there would always be some circumstance that your dividend is reduced. And I wouldn't want an equation telling me that. I would rather use some read, reason and logic. Um, it's a strategic message to the market as well, what you do with your dividend. And so I'd like to control that. And our intention, generally is to keep it the same until you raise it then keep it the same until you raise it but we have reduced it in the past uh, i mentioned 2013 earlier when gold fell off the cliff that year we had to reduce the dividend and we had to reduce spending all through our business um, and i think very successfully and we have a manageable business today like we did have in 2013 and 2013 amazingly we even managed to generate net free cash flow that year. And that was very difficult. And so I think that's where we still sit today in terms of return of capital. We've paid a dividend for 39 consecutive years. We'll continue to do that. Um, hopefully it's at the same level or higher. If things really do get kind of nasty though, we've also got the, the buyback uh, available to us. That, that program we put in place last May and we've only done about, I think, around $80 million so far. It's not a huge amount of money, but I, th I think it is very consistent with our overall messaging, which is we're trying to create per share value. We're trying to increase the exposure for the shareholders to gold on a per share basis. So it, it's consistent with that message. And I think you do get the odd opportunity in a volatile commodity business to nip in there and buy back some sh shares relatively inexpensively and so that's what that tool is there for it's really the more discretionary part of our buyback program on on top of the dividend so you just made something i want to follow up on a unique element of Ignico's success is the gold per share measurement maybe you can just elaborate on that and tell us exactly or specifically what you look at to measure this yeah sure the the metrics I like most are the gold in the ground per share and the gold coming out of the ground per share. So that's resource reserve per share growth, production per share growth. And the reason I like those is because it has nothing to do with the price of gold, where if you looked at cash flow per share or EPS, uh, obviously the gold price, which is not controllable, 
has a, a huge impact on that. And, and to that note, I should mention that we've never hedged gold and we never will because we're trying to maximize your exposure to the metal on a per share basis. But if you look at Igneco over decades, we've actually been able to grow the gold in the ground per share and the gold coming out of the ground per share. And if you compare that to the rest of the sec sector, I don't think a lot of other companies have been uh, particularly successful on that metric. There's been a lot of growth, but not really per share because they issued a lot of shares. So Igneco has been successful, I think, partly by patience. We've been willing to largely self-fund ourselves. We've been willing to use a little bit of debt rather than shares, never too much because it is a volatile commodity business. But uh, we've come out with a pretty good result and we're a much bigger company now. Uh, therefore, it always does get more difficult to keep that rate of growth going. But I think with the existing pipeline we have and with the, the tremendous EBITDA and cash flows that we have, I think we're in a great position here to just keep it trickling in the correct direction. And that's what we're after. Technico's Q4 results were impacted by cost inflation from labor, fuel, and consumables. Do you see this trend continuing? Yeah, for the time being, I do. I think there's obviously still inflation in the world. Um, the governments around the world are fighting that inflation by raising rates. Uh, they're continuing to raise rates. I, I think we're getting closer to the breaking point, frankly, right now. Uh, there's a lot of talk about rate cuts by the end of this year. I actually subscribe to that myself. We're getting into the zone of bank failure already. So I doubt they can push too much farther. But um, this should all be pretty good for gold uh, in the end. And again, Agnico is pretty well positioned for that. But yeah, is there inflation? Yes. Labor rates, which represent about 50% of the operating cost of the industry, never go down. Um, normally, it's 1% to 3% increases. Last year, I think it was 4 to 5% increases for most. So you have to be more efficient in the rest of your operations by that, say, call it 2 to 3% per year. Uh, just to tread water. So it's it's difficult, but I think that also supports over the long term that the price of gold is just going to continue to go up because there is, of course, a monetary side to gold, but there's also a fundamental commodity side to gold as well. And so I think that the whole industry is in good shape today. And I think when gold is released later this year from the, you know, the strong US dollar, which has held it down from the rapidly increasing interest rates, which have held gold down. If you think about it, gold around $2,000 per ounce in that scenario, that's pretty good. So I, I think as we get to the light at the end of the tunnel and rates being cut, that could just release gold and away we go. David, as we wrap up, 2022 was a historic year at Igneco with the acquisition of Kirkland in February of 22 and also the consolidation of Malartic now that you own 100% of it. But what can investors expect for the rest of 2023? Yeah, I think I, I think Igneco is going to be able to deliver this year. Um, there's a few factors uh, that give me that confidence uh, from our guidance in February. As our executive chairman, Sean Boyd, likes to say, uh, we view it as solidly achievable. 
And, and I believe that. I, I think we will have a pretty good year this year from a production perspective. I just talked about the gold price. I think it's going to support the financial results. But I think what's most important is we're able to tell this year a story to the investors that shows how we're going to continue pushing that pipeline forward. And there are a number of studies, you know, Detour, Malartic, uh, Curtin Lake Camp, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, are coming this year or early next year that we'll be able to show that we'll be able to push this pipeline forward and hopefully grow gold production over time, uh, control the share count and thereby increase all those important per share metrics, proving why we're better than a gold bar, because of course a gold bar doesn't grow anything. In fact, if it's in an ETF, there's some sort of fee associated with it, so it very slowly shrinks. Um, but the Igneco gold bar, I like to say, is, is just continuing to grow over time. And I think that's one of the reasons that people like to invest in this company. And David, before I let you go, I just want to reinforce how much Igneco has grown in the 18 years that you have been with the company. But when you joined the company 18 years ago, what was the annual production then and what is it now? Yeah, it was about 200,000 ounces per year when I joined the company and now it's about 3.3 million. I think at the time um, in 05, we had about 100 million shares outstanding and now we have about 500 million shares outstanding. So the gold production's gone up 16 fold and the share count's gone up five fold to my point of increasing the per share value for the investor. That's amazing growth. Well, David, that was a great update and a great overview of Agnico, and I want to thank you for making time for us today. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you for having us on again, and I look forward to next time. Thank you. Did you know that every time you hit the subscribe button, your name goes into a draw to win $1 million? I'm just kidding, but if you do subscribe, we will be very thankful. Thanks for your support. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. You are the market strategist that's fraud asset management and you do both fundamental and technical analysis on precious metals. And we often look at gold and gold equities from a fundamental point of view, but not from a technical point of view. So I'm interested to hear your viewpoints. So I would like to examine a few charts with you so we can get a sense of where the gold price might be going. And why don't we just start with the short-term gold price what does the price indicate on where the price of gold is going in the short term? Hi, Jimmy. Yeah, so the uh, chart set is very bullish. Uh, since the peak in 2020, uh, we can see that gold's been sort of consolidating within this uh, range. Between the highs from 20, 2075, the highs, the lows around 16 and a, you know, 16 and a quarter, 1650 range, marked by the red lines there. And recently we've We've uh, shaped a, uh, a cup and handle formation. That's the name of the pattern. It's it's a close cousin to the uh, head and shoulder reversal pattern, which probably more people are familiar with. But it's the same pattern, roughly. It's it's a it is a reversal type pattern, and the projection off that uh, pattern uh, 
is roughly about 2100 to 2015, well above the red line, which would which would uh, set up a breakout pattern on the channel retracement, which I marked in red. And that channel retracement takes you uh, above 2400, so somewhere around the 2400 to 2450 range. Again, it depends on how you want to mark your points, but that's roughly where the projection target should be roughly. So it's a nice setup. It's a very, technically speaking, it's a very nice setup. I don't think too many people would argue with 2400. Now, when I look at this chart, it looks like there might be some resistance at the 2100 level. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, somewhere around uh, 2100, even the 2070 level, somewhere around there. But, you know, we should see a consolidation. So you, you, you advance, you consolidate, you advance, you consolidate, you know, signs of a very, very healthy uh, you know, bull market progression. Uh, you, you don't want a straight up, you know, straight line up. That's, that's, that is a very unhealthy chart pattern. So we might hit some resistance at the 2100 level, see a bit of a pull back, and then another push higher. Yes, that's that's the anticipation. So that's the short-term picture for gold. What does the longer-term chart indicate? Uh, the long-term chart I set up, I started date roughly around the mid-1970s to see the, the, the rocket ride up into the, you know, the big peak in 1980. And, and for about uh, almost 20 years, it went to a, you know, a consolidation pattern before rising dramatically in the early 2000s to peak out around roughly about 2011. And since then, that pattern is setting up a another uh, cup and handle reversal pattern. Uh, I, I marked the, the handle, which is the same as the prior chart. That would have been the consolidation pattern uh, dating back to 2020. And that's the handle. There's your projection target off that. It's the same. It's 2450. The bigger target is the red line. It's That is, a, again, another uh, channel uh, uh, projection and the projection target is roughly around the $3,000 level and that's sort of the anticipated long-term pattern. Overall shape geometry of the chart is very bullish. Uh, I marked a, a purple line there. It marks a, a right angle, ascending triangle. Again, it's just another very bullish pattern type setup. Um, no matter how you slice or dice it, uh, gold on a long-term chart bases is, has a very, very bullish pattern. And I'm not a technical analyst, but when I do look at this chart, it looks extremely bullish and it looks like the beginnings of a major move upward. Uh, yes, uh, that is what the charts are signaling. The potential is there for uh, roughly about a 50% move higher. Um, Time projection is a little challenging, but it's that that is the uh, that is the uh, the longer term target. Cup and handles tend to re resolve relatively quickly, so 24.50 relatively quickly, quickly 3,000 could take a little bit more time. But it's uh, this is a very bullish setup. Uh, any any person that can read a chart will look at that and instantly see that it is a very very bullish setup. So just to summarize, 2,400 in the short term, 3,000 in the long term for the price of gold? Uh, correct, yeah, short term, you know, short, medium term, 2,450, longer term, 3,000. Another chart that looks interesting is the relationship between gold and treasuries. And before we look at this chart, I'm curious why you look at this relationship. 
Well, I look at gold uh, relative to both uh, bonds and, uh, and equities uh, versus treasuries. This, this one is shaping a minute breakout pattern. Again, also another cup and handle uh, pattern. This one's stretching back over 30 years in, in development. And the, um, uh, this is probably a, a significant breakout pattern relative to treasuries. So if we look at gold and treasuries, essentially in this market current environment, both are driven by roughly the same overriding macro development, that's inflation, bullish for gold, negative for treasuries. And this is just another way of seeing that that, that relationship. Uh, also in the March uh, commentary uh, that's just been released, I, I, I'd also talk about the um, uh, the positive correlation bonds and equities. Prior to 2000, it was a negatively two markets were negatively correlated, meaning that. With a simple two-asset portfolio, bonds and equities, you you could actually develop a reasonably diversified portfolio. With those two assets now back to being positively correlated, that's no longer the case. If you want a diversified portfolio, you will have to consider other adding other assets such as gold bullion or commodities, and which is what we would recommend. But there are other choices that are. That are probably less liquid, a little bit more uh, esoteric or challenging. But this is, a, this is a perfect setup for what we see developing in the bigger macro picture. Let's take a look at the US dollar now or the DXY chart and how does the US dollar look compared to a basket of global currencies and what does this chart tell us? Right, so this is the DXY US dollar index chart going back to about 1970. You can see it in the blue line. It's been it's sort of a downward progression over the over the past 50 years. The red line is the more recent advance. You can see in the red channel that uh, it's it's reached the the apex of the downward blue line and the upward red line. That was sort of the natural area where we expected to see some sort of significant resistance, if not a massive pullback, and we did. So that level touched in Q4 of uh, 22, and when the U.S. dollar spiked, uh, the biggest issue with the U.S. dollar spiking it, it impairs uh, U.S. Treasury liquidity. The U.S. Treasury market is by far and away the, the largest, deepest tradable market on the planet, and when it hits a level where its liquidity is impaired then you'll likely see Fed intervention in terms of bringing down the U.S. dollar just to improve overall liquidity. And we think we've, we've reached that level. So in uh, Q4, we hit very high levels in, in the U.S. Treasury liquidity index, meaning that was malfunctioning. And we hit that level again in March, early March, when SVB banking crisis broke. And with that, the Fed has opened up U.S. dollar swap lines to the five central banks, allowing the central banks access to US dollars. And also they've introduced uh, another facility, the BTFP. Uh, long story short, that acts as a mechanism to cap yields. So on a relative basis, we see US yields falling versus global yields. Again, that adds to US dollar weakness. 
the chart right now is showing at, uh, it's, uh, if you expand that chart on the Bloomberg, you can see that uh, there is a large top formation of potential head and shoulder. It's a little squished on this chart. But if you do that, you'll see there's potential for a significant break lower in the US dollar, which is what we are expecting. And with that, obviously very positive for, for gold and commodities. And Paul, so just to summarize, when we look at the gold price, when we look at treasuries and we look at the US dollar, they all point to a much higher gold price. Yes, they do. The the technical picture, the fundamental picture, the macro picture, we 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 see that as, as you know as a very coherent picture. It's it's all pointing towards the same outcome, a higher uh, gold market. Paul, we can't have a discussion on gold without discussing silver. Let's take a look at the silver chart. What does the chart indicate where pricing is going in the short term and the long term? Right, so I have the silver chart uh, going back to around uh, 2009, uh, just to mark the, the, the big peak we had back in 2010, 11. Again, similar, uh, another pattern, a repeating pattern, uh, a cup and handle uh, reversal pattern brewing. Uh, we see this pattern almost everywhere in the precious metal space. It is a recurrent pattern. It's a, uh, it's again, it's a, it's a reversal pattern from from well-established large base lows, measuring anywhere from you know, five years out to ten, and and you know, the, the long-term chart I showed on gold, measuring out uh, you know decades. But here we are. It's uh, it's in the process right now of shaping the cup. The the neckline is roughly around thirty dollars. Uh, I used a weekly chart, so it's it's not. Uh, doesn't may not market shows on, on the line there, but $30 should be a relatively, should be a nice clean breakout level. And with that, you shape the, the breakout pattern and the breakout pattern projection is roughly about $42 on that particular move. Again, uh, another, another bullish setup in the precious metals area. It's interesting to see when we look at technical analysis, but it, it supports the fundamental case for a much higher gold price and also a much higher silver price. Uh, it does, yeah. We can we use technical analysis as sort of a, um, it's, it's just another input to our process. You know, if we believe the, the fundamental, the macro picture is, is bullish, uh, the chart should confirm that picture. And it obviously does. And sometimes the chart pattern is actually more bullish than the fundamental and macro picture. And usually when we see that type of situation, we, we dig a little deeper, try to understand you know, why, why is the market pricing such a you know, large potential move. And it, it, it's just another tool, it's a part of the process, it's, it's a very useful tool. Um, but it's sometimes it, uh, the best tools are the ones that make you ask the most questions. And that's what technical analysis does, it makes you ask hard questions. And I'm curious, is there one other commodity that screams a higher price? Uh, from a risk-reward perspective, um, it's hard to beat gold. It's uh, large, liquid. We have buyers across the board in terms of central banks, in terms of sovereigns, uh, in 
I think in our March, sorry, in our February uh, goal comment, we, we highlighted that central banks are buying rough in, in the last two quarters of 22, they were buying gold at three times the average uh, quarterly rate of the prior 10 years. Something has changed dramatically in central banks. We highlighted the, you know, the fundamental macro reasons why that reports, so I won't repeat here, but it is, the situation is very, very different from what it was uh, prior to 22. 22 is, uh, again, looks like it may be one of those pivot points in history. But uh, for gold, um, from a risk reward perspective, gold looks outstanding to us. Paul, as we wrap up, where can investors go to find out more about your technical research on precious metals? Uh, you can go to our website, uh, www.sprot.com, and our reports are there. You can, read, you can read them there. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your thoughts on gold and silver. Once again, thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Good to be here. Tyron, thank you very much for joining us today. Before we examine your various assets in detail, I want to begin with a brief discussion of your board of directors. Many of the directors are well known and they've had very successful mining careers. Can you just expand on that? Absolutely. We're, we're very lucky to have a, a lot of pedigree and experience on our board. Uh, first and foremost, I'll hit on our chair, Ian Telfer. He's a man that needs no introduction, but uh, recall he started Wheaton as a $20 million shell turned that into Gold Corp, which at its, at its peak had a $50 billion market cap. Uh, our CEO, Neil Woodyer, is probably best known for starting Endeavor Mining. Uh, again, he began that with a single asset and built it up through a, a, a consolidation strategy into what is now Africa's largest gold mining company. Um, and then maybe one other guy on our board I'll touch on quickly is Peter Moroni. Uh, obviously, he's topical having just sold Yamana to Agnico and Pan American. Uh, and again, that's a company that was started off a single mine and through a series of uh, optimizations and acquisitions uh, was eventually um, uh, turned into a, a 800,000 ounce a year plus gold producer. Yeah, that's a nice way to finish up your career. Tyron, Eris Mining is a South American gold producer with two producing mines. And I want to start with your largest of the two mines, Segovia which is a gold producer in the country of Colombia. Can you just start with a brief overview of this asset? What was the annual production in 2022 and what was the all-in sustaining cost? And what's your guidance for the coming year? Absolutely, so Segovia is our ATM machine. That's uh, the way we like to think of it. It's a very high-grade asset. It's actually been in production for uh, over a century in one way or another. Last year, it did about 210,000 ounces at slightly over $1,100 an ounce. So it generates a lot of cash. Uh, the run rate is about 
85 million US a year. This year, as a combined company, we're looking to produce about 250,000 ounces a year at $1,100 an ounce. That's the, that's the midpoint of our guidance. And Segovia will be the bulk of that, around 215,000 ounces. And you and your team have made significant improvements at Segovia. Can you just provide an overview of some of the improvements that you've made and what's it done to your production profile? Absolutely. So we need to give credit to uh, the predecessor company, GCM, which really consolidated a bunch of small mines, expanded the mill. Uh, our central processing facility is now rated for 2,000 tons a day. This is a plant that five or six years ago was running at 700 tons a day. So they did that without significant downtime. Uh, recent upgrades include a polymetallic plant. So we're actually recovering zinc and lead for the first time. Uh, that could generate uh, somewhere around 10 million bucks US a year in additional revenue. Previously, that was going on the tailings. We've also upgraded the uh, front end of the comminution plant, as well as the filter press. So the, the front and back of the plant are basically rated for 3,000 tons a day. So I think we'll continue to, 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 to um, expand the limits of this, of this processing facility. And then because of the filter press, we now have dry stack tailings. It's a very clean uh, tailings material, and it's actually used for full in the, in the local community. So most of the upgrades have, have been on, on the uh, uh, plant side. And a big part of the Segovia story is one of growth through exploration. You have a very extensive exploration program currently underway with 10 rigs. Can you just provide a little more detail just on how large the budget is, how many meters you want to drill, and, and where exactly the targets are? Absolutely. So Segovia's been around a long time. Uh, we've got a, a great track record of replacing mine ounces. For the last five years, we've replaced mine ounces with new reserves and resources. Our budget this year is pretty healthy. We're spending 17 million US at Segovia. Uh, that'll fund about a 10 rig program. And if you look at our, our deck, uh, there's a good slide that shows there are over 30 known veins. These veins are defined by some of the uh, artisanal miners. Uh, we've mapped them on surface. Occasionally, they've got a drill hole into them. We're only mining four vein areas right now, so there's a big canvas here for us to go and 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 find new new tons for our plant. And you just made mention of artisanal mining. An interesting element of Segovia is the relationship you have with these artisanal miners, and we don't hear much about this in North America, but it's quite prominent in South America. You have a very good relationship with these miners. Can you just expand on this relationship and how it benefits Harris Mining? Absolutely. So Colombia has a long tradition of small-scale artisanal-type mining. Um, there's a lot of them in the Segovia area. So we currently have over 68 agreements. These agreements are with cooperatives or private mining uh, enterprises. Uh, it covers about 3,000 individuals. And uh, essentially, we work with them to the benefit of the community, our shareholders, and their operations. So we convert them into taxpayers. Uh, they deliver their ore to the mill. They get a cash payment up front for, let's say, 90% of the value of the rock. When we get the assay back from the refinery, uh, we complete the remainder of the payment. Uh, we support them with geological um, resources, great control. Uh, we deliver explosives. We ensure that they sign on to our safety standards. And most importantly of, of all, we get around 95% recoveries, uh, upwards of 95%. Uh, with their traditional stamp mills, they're getting closer to 40%. So there's a lot of extra margin there. And their businesses can actually be more profitable, safer. And as some of our, our um, artisanal miners will say, uh, legal mining is profitable mining. So we started with one contract a couple of years ago. We have 68 contracts now, 
and uh, it really helps with our production profile. So they contributed about 15% of our ounces last year. And that's one of the reasons expanding the mill is so important because that excess capacity can always be filled by some of these artisanal sources. The other thing I'll flag is our grade. So if you go through our um, financial uh, disclosure, uh, the grade is very steady. And one of the reasons it's so steady is at any given time, we have a one to two month stockpile on surface. A lot of that comes from artisanal surf sources. It's very high grade, sometimes over 40 grams a ton. So we can we can always blend the ore and make sure we're sending the mill uh, a steady grade. And that's one of the reasons that Segovia has been so profitable. And Tyron, you just made mention of the fact that the artisanal miners contribute to 15% of your production at Segovia. Are you looking to add or grow this aspect of your business? Absolutely. So we have a commercial team on site that's always looking for new agreements. Uh, as I mentioned, the mill looks like it uh, has yet to find its limits and we can fill that excess capacity with these artisanal agreements. We're also looking to facilitate a similar program at Mormado and possibly one day at Soto Norte. Um, it's really helped with our social license in the country. And I think the success at Segovia is, is a bit of a template to use at other assets in, in, in Colombia. And this is a big priority for the government. There are a lot of artisanal miners and we can partner with, with the government to the benefit of the community and our shareholders. So let's move on to Marmado. That's your second producing mine, which is also based in Colombia. It's much smaller than Segovia, but it has a long and rich history of gold production within the country. What was the total production in 2022 and what was the all-in sustaining cost? So currently we divide Marmado into the upper and lower mine. Uh, so the upper mine is an epithermal system, narrow vein. It's like Segovia, a little bit lower grade, actually uh, much lower grade, uh, around three or four grams. Last year it did 25,000 ounces, uh, sort of marginal on a free cash flow basis. Uh, we're there though for the lower mine. So at the lower mine, we've discovered a large porphyry intrusive. If you look at all of the categories, this is over 8 million ounces of gold. Uh, it's continuous, it's wide, it's bulky. And so what we're looking to do is amend our current permit, uh, stick in two new ramps and convert this to a modern uh, bulk long haul operation uh, that'll produce around 165 thousand ounces a year. While we're working towards that, we are optimizing the upper mine by better understanding the geology, by focusing on reducing dilution and just moving more tons because we're not currently filling the existing uh, process facility. Uh, the plant we have right now can can uh, process around 1,200 tons a day um, and we're not filling that at, at, at the moment. So we're, we're going to slowly ramp up the upper mine while we permit and bring the lower mine into production. I'll also add that the um, asset has a 20-year mine life on reserves. And if you count resources, you're looking at, at multiple decades. Yeah, so this is another foundational asset for us in Colombia. And Tyron, you recently released a pre-feasibility study on the lower mine expansion. Maybe you can just give us some uh, highlights from that study. Absolutely. So it's actually our second pre-feasibility study. Um, we've seen a lot of capital inflation in the sector, so we wanted to make sure all of our numbers were accurate. That came out in September. Uh, we boosted reserves from around 2 million ounces to 3.2 million ounces. Capital stayed roughly the same, around 280 million. So this is easily uh, fundable for us from our current cash and funding sources. What we like about the asset is the long mine life, 20 years on reserves. All in sustaining costs are around 1,000 bucks an ounce, inclusive of the stream. And it's a simple project, and we're just expanding an existing mine. So we're not breaking ground in the middle of the jungle. It's an asset we know well. We have a team at site. Um, and so this is our, our next big uh, source of growth. And Marmato also has a streaming agreement with Wheat and Precious Metals. Maybe you can just expand on that agreement. 
Yeah, so we have a fantastic relationship with um, Weed and Precious Metals. The stream at Mormato, once we get our permit, they release a series of payments uh, totaling around 120 million. Uh, now, remember, we already have 300 million in cash. So Gobi is generating uh, free cash flow every year. So I would say Mormato is overfunded. Um, in return for that upfront payment, Wheaton gets a stream on 5% uh, of the gold and 50% of the silver life of mine. They make ongoing payments at around 18% of, of spot. So that was one of the, 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 the funding mechanisms to, to make sure that Marmata goes into production. We've discussed your two producing mines. Now I want to touch on your most advanced development project, which is called Soto Norte. It's also in Colombia. It's also one of the world's largest undeveloped gold projects. A feasibility study was released in 2021 on this property. Why don't you just provide us with some of the highlights from that feasibility study? Absolutely. So Soto Norte is uh, an asset that might be recognized under a former ownership, uh, Ventana Gold. This is a penny stock that went from $0.10 cents to $13. I think it's one of the last great big gold reserves uh, uh, in existence right now at a development stage. So in all categories, there are 12 million ounces, but the feasibility study, uh, which was published in 2021, focused on 5 million ounces. Uh, the grade there was 6 grams gold, about an ounce of silver, and 0.2% copper. So when you combine the geometry of the ore body, it's very compact. Uh, it can be mined at up to 7,000 tons a day. And you combine that processing rate with gold equivalent grades of around 9 grams, it is a very, very low cost ore body. So the feasi uh, feasibility study estimated all in sustaining costs of around $471 an ounce. And even if those numbers are 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 aggressive or 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 or, or turn out to be subject to some inflation, uh, whichever way you slice it, this is going to be one of the lowest cost assets in the world. So right now uh, it's at the permitting phase, and we are redoing the technical work before we submit a new permit application. And you don't own 100% of this. Maybe you should just tell us about the ownership structure. Absolutely. So the asset um, we acquired a 20% interest from Mubadla. Uh, they are a large sovereign wealth fund. They are not a mining group, but they do have a high mining IQ. Um, they've partnered with us, given our track record in Colombia, as well as our board and management team's ability to finance and uh, the fact that we've built mines all over the world. So we currently own 20%. We paid 100 million US for that. We have a right to go up to 50% once we get the permit. It's going to cost us another $300 million to do that. Um, so right now we're leading the charge on permitting. And Neil Woodyear, the CEO of Eris, is also the CEO of the joint venture company, uh, Manessa. I want to move on now and discuss your balance sheet. You touched on this earlier, but maybe you can just remind us again what your cash position is, what your total liquidity is for the coming year. Absolutely. So I, we've got a fantastic balance sheet. Um, I think it really insulates us from what can be a very volatile space. Uh, I mean, gold's above 2000 at the time we're having this conversation, but uh, the equities haven't fully uh, responded. So we can just put our head down, continue to grow. We don't need to look at what the stocks are doing. So we have 300 million US in cash. Uh, Segovia is generating significant free cash flow last year on the order of 80 million US. So you, you need to keep that in mind. That's, that's going to add to our, our cash pile. And then if you look at our two uh, streaming agreements at Toro Peru and Mamoto, that could bring in another 260 million uh, US. So we're more than funded for Marmato. And if you look out to when both Segovia and Marmato are running at uh, full capacity, we're generating about 300 million in, in, in EBITDA a year. Um, so 
strong balance sheet. And I think uh, the management team, uh, the board and embedded growth is one of the things that separates us from our, from our peer group. And given your cash position, would you consider acquiring another asset in Colombia or somewhere else in South America? You also own a exploration project in the Abitibi Gold Belt area of Canada. Would you think about or consider acquiring uh, another project in Canada? Uh, well, I mean, if you look at our board, uh, they have a track record of being very aggressive on M&A. If you look at how quickly uh, Neil built up Endeavor and how quickly Telfer built up Gold Corp, uh, that's in their DNA. Uh, we have a great team. We have access to capital. So certainly we'd look to leverage that to grow the company. We also believe that in this gold market, the funds are bigger, so the gold companies need to become bigger. Uh, that being said, we've got a lot of development ounces, over 20 million ounces in all categories. We need more production assets. So I think if we're looking to grow, it's probably going to be a producing cash flowing asset and we'll, and we'll protect our cash. Uh, one of the issues we have is we think our stock is, is very undervalued. Uh, we have six or seven analysts covering us. I think our consensus PNAV is around 0.3 times NAV, um, but absolutely we are uh, opportunistic. We're making sure we understand our peers and targets in the space. And we have a board that has a fantastic network uh, and can actually get, get deals done. So we are ambitious. Um, so I would say stay tuned on that front, but our cash right now is earmarked for more motto. That's our focus is get that into production. Tyron, as we wrap up, you've already provided a lot of detail about your various assets and what you're going to do in the coming year, but maybe you can just summarize what investors can expect in terms of news flow in the coming months. Absolutely. So I think the biggest catalyst for our company is permitting Mormato, getting it into production. Once Mormato is running, we're producing 400,000 ounces a year. That's a lot of growth, and I think it's going to drive a better uh, multiple. Um, and I think it's going to prove that uh, Colombia is a jurisdiction that is open to responsible uh, miners and responsible mining entrepreneurs. So that's going to be a big catalyst. And so I'd say continued execution at Segovia and Marmato. You also need to watch our drill bit. Uh, we don't need to take geologic risk. We have a lot of ounces in the ground. That being said, I think all of our assets are geologically uh, prospective. So we will look to put out um, uh, updates on, on, on an interim basis. Tyron, that was a great overview of Eris Mining, and I want to thank you for sharing the story with us today, and we look forward to upcoming developments at Eris Mining in the coming months. Once again, thank you. Thanks for having us. Did you know we're now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? So now you can listen to us on Spotify or Apple and listen and learn when you're stuck in traffic on the 401 in Toronto, the I-95 in New York, or the I-5 in LA. So be sure to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Hi, Elisa. Thank you very much for joining us today. Copernic Global is based in Tampa, Florida and manages around $6 billion in assets. And the mandate of the firm is value investing. Where do you and your team see value currently in this market? Thanks, Jimmy. It's really great to be here. Um, currently, I mean, we've talked a lot in the past about how expensive the markets are and 
we still view the US as being very expensive, fixed income, very expensive, but there are really good pockets of value out there to be found. One is in emerging markets. So we own half of our portfolios in these high quality franchises, cash flowing businesses, market leading companies in emerging markets. And then half of our portfolio is in commodities and resources and real assets. So um, 25% of our portfolio is in gold mining, which I know we've talked about uranium, so I'm excited to, to talk about gold today because that's really our, our highest conviction area. And maybe you can dive deeper into that. Why do you have such a strong conviction for gold and gold equities? Well, gold we, be, we believe is underpriced. Uh, it, it correlates very well with the monetary base and that has really been dislocated since 2011. Um, the monetary base is up you know, roughly three times since 2011, where gold is flat, and then gold miners are down 50% from that point. So really, gold miners are, are an incredible value, even if gold doesn't go higher. But we do think that, that gold does go much higher from here. Um, many people will say, well, gold is this, you know, pet rock, <laughs> what's the point of gold? Um, and we say, yeah, you can't eat gold, you can't put it in a car, it, you know, you don't consume gold. It doesn't sound like a commodity, but it does sound like money. You also don't consume your money, you don't put your money in the, the your car. Um, money is is a very good, to be a good money, you need to have it be a, a good medium of exchange and a good store of value. So gold has has been money for thousands of years. It's inert, it's homogenous, it's portable, it's divisible, all those things that you need it to be to be a good medium of exchange. And and paper money really is probably a better medium of exchange because it's just it's easier to transact in. However, for it to be a store of value, which money also needs to be, it needs to be scarce. And paper money, as the central banks have, have shown, is, is anything but scarce. Um, and so, you know, in these times of, of central bank printing, where you, you increase the monetary base significantly, now we're starting to see the symptoms of that um, with rising prices and, and, and interest rates are, are not high enough. They're, you may now have negative real rates, and that's usually sets up for a very good environment for real assets. Uh, people are, are losing money, you know, three to 4% a year. Eventually they will, you know, they, they flee to, to safety, they flee to, to scarce real assets, uh, things that can't be printed out of thin air. So gold does very well in those situations. The 1970s is a great example where if gold went from 100 to $800 an ounce over a period of four years. Uh, when you had these negative real rates. So today is very much like this, the 1970s. So we do think that, that gold does go higher, um, but the gold mining is, is great because you don't even have to, to have high expectations for gold for them to do very well. Alicia, you raised a lot of very interesting points there. And I just want to clarify one point. You made mention of the fact that gold since 2011 has more or less been flat, but yet the money supply has gone up three times so if I understand you correctly, in the way that you and your firm look at it, the price of gold should also go up three times or it should be 
it should move in correlation with the money supply? It should. Now you have to, you know, we think about gold in a number of different ways. We use a number of scenarios in our gold valuation models. One is a, a bear case that gold goes to a thousand and effectively all these mining companies are, are not worth very, very much in that environment. The other is we look at, okay, well, what are these gold mining companies worth at just current liquidation values? And many of the, the equities are trading below the, the price today. And then we say, okay, well, if we viewed gold as a commodity, what what is that price that would incentivize new supply? That's how we come up with our, our anchor for copper and uranium and, and those sorts of things. Um, there are no new gold mines being built today of scale. And so you really do need to see north of $2,000 an ounce just to bring on new supply. So, so that's another indicator that the gold price is too low. Then you, to, to answer your question more directly, you look at, all right, well, what is gold worth if it is money? And over time, gold has backed the monetary base. Uh, the percentage of, of how, like, how large of a percentage it needs to back the monetary base is, has changed over time. In the 1980s, there, there, you know, gold more than backed the whole monetary base. It was 100% backing. Uh, in our valuation models, we're saying, okay, well, what if gold backed the monetary base by 25%? What does that look like? And, and to your point, yes, it, it's multiples higher than, than today. That's just one scenario. And, and as I mentioned, uh, the gold mining companies are, are trading below just the current price today. So we get that free call option on, on a rising gold price. Lisa, you made mention of the fact that 25% of your AUM is allocated toward gold equities. I wanna discuss diversification and the importance of diversification beginning with how many names do you own in the we gold? We own more than 20 different gold mining companies and, and diversification is so important in the mining sector. There's, it's a very tough business. So a lot can go wrong from on the mining side. Maybe you don't have as many ounces as you think you might have. Uh, maybe the metallurgy is, is different than what you expect. Um, so lots can happen just operationally that that makes mining a challenging business <clears throat> then you have on top of that you can't just pick up and move your mind to a different country so there's geopolitical risk sometimes governments want more of the action especially in when when the prices are rising we're seeing that in in chile for example with with copper um, and then you have management teams which have in balance sheet <clears throat> issues so Historically, the gold mining sector has not had the best uh, capital allocation. They've not made wonderful decisions. So that's an additional risk factor. And, and so because of all of that, it's, a, it's important to own a lot of, of different mining companies. And, and you can still do well even when you know, some of your companies don't work out. For example, in 2016, we had a one of our largest positions. It was a, a coal mining company that was effectively stolen away from us, and our portfolio was up 50%. Um, so, you know, diversification is important because it can diversify some of these idiosyncratic risks. I want to move on now and examine valuations. What gold price do you use to value equities? 
As I mentioned, we, we run a number of different scenarios. So we, we weight those uh, scenarios and come up with um, what we think that the gold mining, the gold mining companies are worth. Um, importantly, we, we don't value these companies the way that the market does. The market tends to use DCF models, which we think they're, they're misapplying a, a, a model that works really well for bonds. If you're gonna get cash flows over the next 10 years, fixed cash flows, you would expect that the cash flow that you receive in 10 years is not going to buy you as much as the cash flow that you got in year one. So it makes sense to discount. However, a mine is very different. Gold actually holds its value over time. It rises generally over time in a depreciating currency environment. Um, and so what we think people are doing is actually by using a flat gold price and then putting a positive discount rate on it, they're actually saying that gold is losing value over time, which is, is flawed logic. So we value just the reserves in the ground. But, and I should mention that the result of using a DCF model or, is that the long-lived, you know, the long-life mining assets are undervalued. So if you're choosing between mine A and mine B, and mine A has 15 years of, of mine life and mine B has 50, at a certain discount rate, it, it, no, you're getting no value for those years 35 and beyond. You're indifferent between the two. Whereas we say, if you're gonna own a mining company, you'd much rather own one that has 50 years of reserves rather than 15. So we value the, the ounces in the ground. And we say, okay, if they have 10 million ounces, it's gonna cost them $1,500 an ounce to, to pull it out of the ground. Each ounce roughly is worth $500 an ounce. Uh, that's the margin that they're gonna get on that. Then we subtract out any CapEx that, that they will have to spend any, all their liabilities. And that's our theoretical value. And then, talking about all the risks that they face, then we want a, a huge discount to that. And some of our, our discounts are between 60 and 80%. We, we haircut it, we'll haircut it 80%. And then and then if there's upside to that price, that's that's when we buy. So these are the sorts of discounts that we're, we're seeing in the marketplace today. And we're seeing that there's multiples upside to that risk adjusted uh, intrinsic value. So let's try to quantify that. When you look at gold producers, generally speaking, what gold price are they factoring in? It's so interesting because we just went to the, the BMO conference in, uh, in February and you talk to a copper mining company, a, a CEO, a nickel CEO, and they all have an idea of what copper's worth or nickel's worth. You ask a gold mining company what, what gold price they're using in their models and they say, oh, we just use consensus. <laughs> well, who is consensus? Who is this, this magical consensus? Well, it's a consensus of analysts on, on Wall Street. And how do they know more about what the gold price should be than, than the CEOs of a gold mining company? So anyway, everybody seems to be using $1,600 an ounce, which goes clearly below today's level and, and well below what we think gold should do, which is go much higher. 
And how do current valuations compare to the last cycle? And I'm just trying to get a sense of how cheap gold equities are now compared to what they were in the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. So the fall of 2015 was a, a godsend for a value investor. March of 2020, obviously, they got very cheap. They, they fell in half for really no reason. And then, I mean, today they're, they are still very inexpensive. And so we, we only go to 25% of our portfolio in you know, rare circumstances. That's the, our max in any industry. So that's the level of conviction we have in, in these gold mining companies over the long term. There's, you know, very well, they very well could fall over the next six months, but we're long-term patient investors that, you know, have a time horizon of many, many years. <laughs> I want to move on now and discuss M&A. We've seen a lot of M&A deals in the last couple of years. Currently, we have Newmont trying to buy Newcrest. You've mentioned in the past that Newcrest was one of your larger holdings and you thought there was very good value there. What do you think of Newmont's bid for Newcrest and does it represent good value? As you mentioned, yeah, Newcrest is one of our, our largest holdings. and if you know Newcrest already rejected one bid of, of Newmont's, and so maybe they come back at, with with a higher offer. And should Newcrest accept, we would think you know depends on the price, but I would imagine maybe 20, 30 percent higher than what they originally offered. That would be a steal for for Newmont. We you know in general, what we're seeing across all sectors is that. Companies in the U.S. are trading at a much higher premium than than outside of the U.S., and then even more of a premium to emerging markets. So, Newcrest we think has four times upside, where Newmont we're thinking more has two times upside from here. Um, but it also speaks to this interesting uh, phenomenon in the the mining industry, which is that these big companies all have the same issue, which is that their reserves and their resources are depleting and they need to replace those reserves. So buying each other doesn't actually solve that problem. You have this, this match made in heaven where these developing companies who are sitting on deposits that don't have the expertise, they don't have the balance sheet to actually develop the, the, the resource, are just begging to be acquired by by the likes of Newmont or Newcrest. Um, and so it's it's odd that they would be choosing to merge with, uh, you know, acquire another uh, large producer rather than buying up a bunch of these smaller companies sitting on deposits that are trading at much, you know, much cheaper valuations. So bottom line is Newmont's going to have to make a higher bid. Well, we hope, yes. <laughs> I mean, New, Newcrest already rejected one, but we hope they reject a further. <laughs> I want to move on now and discuss the U.S. economy. U.S. regional banks have been decimated in recent weeks. Silicon Valley Bank has been wiped out. First Republic is down 90% on the year. Key Corp is down 30% on the year. Credit Suisse was forced to merge with UBS. How does this crisis in regional banks impact your view on gold? It doesn't change our, our view on gold. Uh, hopefully it's waking other people up to 
to the fragility in the system that we've been talking to our clients about for many, many years. We've, you just have too much debt in the system. Um, and with you know, many years of easy monetary conditions, you have a lot of malinvestment and it seems that that's all coming to surface now. Um, gold is, is the best form of money. It's the one that doesn't have any counterparty risk. So maybe people start thinking about that when they're starting to think, oh, how safe are my deposits here? And what loans did this, you know, did my bank make? Uh, maybe it starts people thinking in terms of, of trying to find some safety in real assets. You mentioned earlier that you and your team were at the BMO Mining Conference, which was held in South Florida every February. Can you give us some takeaways? What were themes that you noticed this year that you didn't notice in previous years? Well, they changed the name of the conference. <laughs> so they added critical metals. So everything is, and this is not new from other years, but battery metals is, is all the rage. Everybody seems to love copper. And we, we like the supply and demand fundamentals for copper too. But gold is, nobody, nobody loves gold. Nobody thinks that gold's going to go much higher. So as a value investor, that's, that's always a, a great thing to, to judge the sentiment. And so to your point, if you're a contrarian investor, this is very bullish for gold and I guess negative for battery metals. Yeah, there's not a lot of optimism priced into the to the gold price or the gold mining stocks in particular, yeah. Lisa, as we wrap up, the narrative for gold has never been more positive. Inflation is at 40-year highs. We have a financial crisis with U.S. regional banks, which seems to be spreading globally. Do you feel it's different this time? Is this the time gold breaks through $2,000 and keeps going? It certainly, you would think so. <laughs> However, I've been surprised that you know the NASDAQ is up after the you know, Silicon Valley Bank fa failed. So it still seems that people have this risk on mentality and they've been very well trained to, to buy the dip. So who knows how much longer this, this cycle is prolonged, but uh, we tell our investors cycles, the, the Fed has prolonged cycles, they have not eliminated cycles. So um, eventually, you know, we would expect our, our gold to react positively and, and the gold miners to, to do very well as well. Well, Lisa, as always, that was a very fascinating discussion and I wanna thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your views on gold and gold equities. Once again, thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me.
George, thank you very much for joining us today. El Dorado Gold has four producing gold mines and the growth profile from the, these mines, along with your development project Scurries, is very strong over the next five years. Can you just talk about the growth at your existing mines as well as your development project Scurries? Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Good to be with you again. You know, we're at a really exciting time at El Dorado. We're a pretty unique story in that we've got significant growth over the next five years. Um, our five-year guidance shows 55% growth over that period, and it's pretty consistent growth. We're in the 9 to 16% annual growth year over year through that five-year period, and it comes from growth in our existing operating portfolio, and then the back three years, really bringing our new Scurries Gold Copper Porphyry project into production really drives us to over 700,000 ounces a year, so exciting time for us. And the big news uh, with Scurries is that you recently closed on a financing package, and this was many months in the works. Maybe you can just touch on that and what exactly was included in the package. Yeah, so for Scurries, it's a $845 million U.S. dollar uh, capital project, and we completed a financing package that's 680 million euros, and it comes from two large banks in Greece as well as some COVID relief funding out of the EU. And the way it breaks down, the two Greek banks are financing 480 million euro, and each of those banks is managing 100 million euros of funding coming out of the COVID relief funding from the EU. So that total package, again, is about 680 million euros, and that basically covers 80% of the capital required to complete scurries. The balance, 20%, will come off El Dorado's balance sheet and our operating cash flow during that period. And maybe you can just tell us what are the next steps for Scurries now that you have the financing locked in? Well, I mean, maybe a few more details on the financing. It's it's coming in at a, a really competitive price. The interest rates just, well, it's approximately 5%. So in the current interest rate environment, that's extremely good. And, and again, we think we have the right stakeholders aligned with us now, Greek banks and, and the EU. In terms of the capital cost, it's also a fairly unique project uh, compared to others that are under construction at this time. Uh, one of the key reasons it's different is that it's roughly half built. All of the major equipment in the in the flotation circuit, so crushing, grinding, flotation, that equipment's not only purchased, it's already installed. Last year, we put up the uh, building over the mill facility, cranes, cladding. So that was completed as part of our early works. And really the only significant piece of equipment not yet on site are the dry stack filters. So this project's going to deploy dry stack tailings where we'll filter the water out of the tailings and then convey a, essentially a dry tailings down into a facility. And so those filters were ordered in the second quarter of last year they came in slightly below our feasibility study cost estimate. And so really we have no risks on equipment deliveries or equipment cost escalation. And so what's remaining is a lot of uh, civil works. We've got diversion ditches to put in, water treatment plant, um, the tailings facility construction itself, a rock dam that'll sit downstream of the dry stack tailings area to essentially ensure that there's no erosion uh, over the life 
or into perpetuity. And so, um, and then beyond that, we've got piping and wiring and things to do within the plant. Uh, this, this is an open pit and underground project. So we have a contractor already breaking ground on the underground component and during the construction, we will complete two large test scopes to validate all of our assumptions on the underground component. Open pit's already been pre-stripped, so we're at the top of the ore body. During the construction, we'll be removing additional waste, pre-stripping for the future, and that rock will be used in constructing that rock dam below the facility. So when you look at the project scope, really no risk on major equipment. Um, about 50% of the cost in that 845 million is Greek labor. We're in a good environment, uh, still pretty high unemployment rates in Greece, so a readily available workforce for both construction and operations. Um, and then the, the last point I'd make is, you know, 80% of the funding is coming out of the, the, the financing package we recently completed. Um, and that's a Euro-based financing package, but 80% of the capital cost to be spent is also in Euros. And so we've got a good match there. In our feasibility study, we assume the foreign exchange rate of about 1.16 to 1, and currently it's sitting around 1.06. So we've got a tailwind, uh, about 9% on 80% of the capital cost, really no risk on major equipment. And you know we got a fantastic team from El Dorado and from Fleur on site getting ready to ramp this up into full construction over the next couple of months. So it's a really exciting time for us, and it's a fantastic project. And in terms of a timeline, when can we expect production? Yeah, so it's it's a fairly quick construction given you know most of the infrastructure for the plants in place. So we'll start commissioning in mid 2025, and we expect to have commercial production by the end of 2026. And maybe the last thing I just mentioned is just we we talked a bit about there's a lot of production growth in our portfolio. But really, it's the quality of the production that comes with Scurry that's the big driver. This operation is going to have a negative all-in sustaining cost, and that's because the copper byproducts will pay all the operating and sustaining capital cost, thereby giving gold to be free cash flow from the operation. So it's going to have a massive impact on, on El Dorado's cost structure and ability to generate free cash flow, which is really the primary driver for valuation. So really, really exciting time for us. And everybody's looking for copper now. Yeah, you know, for sure, we're in an environment with electrification of the planet that I think copper's got a strong runway ahead of it. And of course, gold's on a really good tear. So I think we've got the, the two good commodities in the current environment to drive value for our shareholders. So that was a great overview of Scurries. Things are moving along there. Now let's move on and discuss Lamoc, which is an underground mine based in Veldor, Quebec. And it was Eldorado's single largest producer in 2022. Can you just provide us with a quick overview of this mine? What was the annual production and what was the all-in sustaining cost? And maybe you can also touch on the growth opportunities. Sure. So, I mean, this was a fantastic acquisition for Eldorado in 2017. It was an advanced exploration project at the time. Um, we put it into operation and production in less than two years. Um, and we've grown the production profile. It, it started out with a peak production of around 130,000 ounces. It's now peaking around 200,000 ounces. As you say, it's, a, it's an underground operation. 
we've been mining out of the Triangle Underground deposit uh, since startup. And we've got a bright future with Triangle with lots of inferred resources to depth. Um, but we also have exciting exploration potential to, to bolt onto that. Um, in terms of production, uh, last year we did about 174,000 ounces of gold at $1,036 uh, per, per ounce and a C1 of about $642 per ounce sold. So, you know, it's a solid operation with good cost. On this uh, property, we made a discovery a couple of years ago that we call Ormoc. And Ormoc is a separate underground deposit. It's a little bit higher grade. It's a flatter lying ore body. Um, we just completed a decline to connect the Triangle Underground to our Sigma mill at the end of 2021. About mid last year, we, we put a, a drift off of that decline and we're actively infill drilling the Armok deposit. Now, what's important about this, it's already permitted for production. Uh, the infill drilling will give us the drill density to convert it from an inferred resource to a reserve. And, and that drilling should be completed uh, around the end of this year. And then in the first half of next year, we're planning to collect a bulk sample out of this new deposit, which will be the last thing we need to do to convert this to a reserve. So pretty confident this is gonna be uh, an increase in reserves next year. It will add additional MPV and value to this operation. And, and, uh, and that's really in the near term. Beyond that, we have a large exploration platform and profile uh, on our property package for actively drilling a number of underground targets and hoping to have the next discovery, uh, you know, in the next year or so. So it's been a great acquisition and it's got a bright future. So we've touched on the operation in Greece and we touched on the operation in Quebec. Now let's move on to Turkey. Kishladag is an open pit mine located in the country of Turkey. It had some challenges in 2022. Production was 135,000 ounces, which was below guidance. Maybe you can just touch on what the challenges were in 2022 and, and if those challenges have been resolved and what the outlook is for the coming year. Yeah, so Kistadaz, as you say, an open pit heap leach operation that is really going through a, a second life. So we've just completed an investment in a high pressure grinding roll circuit at the end of 2021 and we're commissioning it into 2022. And we had a few small growing pains at the beginning of 2022 in that we were crushing the ore refiner as expected to drive recoveries up. But we also figured out pretty quickly that we needed to agglomerate the ore. And to do this, we're adding cement to the crushed ore. What this does is cause the fines to bind together to ensure that we can get good permeability or flow solutions through that crushed material to extract the gold. And so last year, uh, we were learning how to run that circuit with, with cement addition. The cement makes the ore sticky. It was plugging chutes, and so it took a while for us to learn how to operate it. At the same time, we're investing in essentially capital for the next 15 years of mine life at Kisada. And so we've put in larger conveyors. That's helped with uh, the cement addition. Um, and, and so we were able to drive the tonnage up by the end of last year, came slightly underneath guidance for the site, but really we set this up for an exciting future going forward and that we've now got the North Leach pad going into production in the second half of this year. That will sustain us over the remaining 15 year mine life. The HPGR 
it has lots of upside potential in terms of both throughput and ability to crush the ore finer. Finer ore means exp we expose more gold. That means we could get better recovery. And the last piece of the puzzle, uh, around the middle of last year, from the learnings we had in starting up this new circuit, we purchased an agglomeration drum. And essentially, this drum is, is just being installed and we'll take the fine ore that comes out of the HPGR crushing circuit, we'll add the cement there rather than on the conveyors, and in that drum, we'll do a better job of agglomerating the ore, essentially making balls out of the fines. Uh, the, the cement will help stick that together, and then we combine that with the coarser material, and then place it up on the pad, and then extract the gold through heap leaching. So really, our focus going forward at Kisada is how much, what, you know, what, how can we debottleneck this plant to get higher throughput? How could we crush the ore finer with the addition of this agglomeration drum? And ultimately, what does that mean in terms of tons placed and gold recovery going forward? So, you know, we believe we've got significant upside. This year, we'll be testing the new circuit. And by the end of the year, we should be in a pretty good position to understand that upside and to bake it into our five-year guidance a year from now. So, you know, really exciting time for us on a key asset for the company. And I think it's got a bright and improving future. George, I want to move on now and discuss your exploration program. It's a big part of the growth strategy over the next five years. We already touched on what's happening at Ormoc. Maybe you can just talk about your overall exploration budget for the coming year and where you and your team will be focusing your resources. Yeah, so we got a, a pretty large exploration budget this year. It's between 35 and 41 million US dollars. About 57% of that's expensed and the rest is capitalized. And the breakdown on that exploration, 60% of it's in Canada at our Lamoc operation. We've got about 119,000 meters planned for drilling and 45,000 of that's resource conversion drilling on our mock. That's the deposit we're looking to convert to a reserve. And you know, hopefully with our exploration, we'll have the next discovery on this property package and bolt that on to what we expect to be a reserve increase next year, bringing our, our mock into the reserve picture. And then switching over to Turkey, about 30% of that budget is in Turkey. Here we're focused on uh, FM Chukuru, where we have the West Fanes uh, in terms of exploration targets to, to create new inferred resources. And then we're also doing about 10,000 meters of resource conversion drilling at FM Chukuru, basically to be able to extend mine life by, by reserve conversion. And we do have some greenfield projects. You know, El Dorado successfully discovered both Kisada and FM Chukuru and brought those discoveries into, into operations. We do have a, a number of greenfield projects that we're currently actively drilling on, and we're hopeful to have our third mine in that jurisdiction. And then about 10% of the, the exploration spend is in Greece, and it's re, really brownfield targeting around Olympias and, and Scurry. So yeah, big year for from the exploration perspective and, and hopefully an exciting year in terms of new discovery and, and reserve conversion. George, I want to move on now and discuss valuation. In addition to a very strong gold price, Eldorado Gold has so much going for it. We already discussed the completion of the financing package at Scurries and also the exploration upside, but Eldorado is still trading at a discount to many of its comps. What will you and your team do in the coming months to resolve this? 
Yeah, I mean, really the the opportunity to change the valuation of El Dorado is really a, a, a key opportunity for us. Our P to NAV, we're trading on the, the bottom side of our peer group. And, and the key reason for that is that Scurries is a high quality project, but the market currently isn't giving us credit for that high quality asset. And so by delivering the financing package recently, we're in, we're in a good position. We have the funds required to complete construction. We have a high quality team at site uh, ramping up the construction and we'll have this operation in commercial production by the end of 2025. So as you see from our production profile, we'll be increasing our production and, and driving our unit costs down uh, over that five year period. And, and we believe with delivery of our growth, the market will, will revalue El Dorado. And I really firmly believe we're gonna be on the top side of that PNAV equation. And that's simply because the quality of our assets scurries with that negative all in sustaining costs is gonna bring down our consolidated average cost per ounce. And that's gonna drive our margins up. We're gonna be generating significant free cash flow. And, and that's gonna dramatically reposition El Dorado from a PNAV perspective. And I think this is the, the number one opportunity for shareholders is, is to be involved with El Dorado as we drive and deliver on this tremendous high quality growth. George, as we wrap up, you've already provided a lot of detail about your various operations, but maybe you can just summarize for investors what they can expect in terms of news flow in the coming months. Yeah, so, I mean, starting with Turkey, you know, I'd say with, with Kisada getting our agglomeration drum up and running, um, having a good year on production and, and cost, and uncovering the opportunities to further create value on Kisadag, you know, that will be an evolving story over the next year. And then at FM Chukru, it's really the focus on conversion of inferred resources uh, to reserves and then extending mine life. As we switched over to Canada, similar story in terms of the infill drilling on our mock, the ability to convert that to a reserve and, and extend mine life. And that'll happen in the first half of 2024. In Greece, it's really continued transformation on Olympias. You know, we're expecting to be able to drive up production, drive down cost. And then while we're doing that, we're gonna be executing on the Scurries construction project and be, you know, good opportunities for us every quarter to update the market on how that construction's going and ultimately delivering the high quality value from that, that asset. Well, George, that was a great update. I want to thank you for spending time with us today and congratulations to you and your team on completing the financing package at Scurries. Once again, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the conference. Did you know that 80% of our viewers are not subscribers to our channel? So that probably means you. So be sure to hit that subscribe button. Hi, Daniela. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to this discussion. You have a very interesting background in that you are the CEO of a mining producer 
You're also an investment banker and you sit on various boards of mining companies, so you can offer a totally different perspective than many other speakers. And I wanna start our conversation on valuations. Gold producers have never been in better shape. Miners are producing large amounts of cash flow. They're paying dividends. They have very strong balance sheets. And yet they're trading at significant discounts to what we saw in the previous cycle. And I want to get your views on why that is. Thanks very much for uh, having uh, uh, me and for the invitation. And I look forward to, uh, to our discussion. So there's a lot to unpack here, and I'd like to focus really on, on two factors. One, the fundamentals of the gold price, which does drive the price of the equities. And two, on investment interest. Today, investors have a lot more options to gain exposure to gold, that's physical metal, derivative products, ETFs. When you really think about it, the GDX ETF was created in 2006, so that's about halfway in the last gold cycle. And you know, when you look at these other different uh, methodologies or, uh, that you can use to gain exposure to gold that are less uh, risk or that have less risk than actually investing in a gold equity that comes with its own you know, set of challenges around operational performance, geopolitical risk, climate, uh, which has been having more of an impact on operational performance. You're gonna certainly look at uh, the fact that this may have had a damper on valuation itself. And lastly, from an investment interest perspective, gold equities have not really created a lot of value outside of the gold price increase, and even with a gold price increase that we have seen in the last decade. The investment returns have been weak, some might say that the industry has destroyed a lot of value through poor M&A, weak track record in execution of growth projects, a poor track record in returning capital to investors. And really, this made me really think about that saying, you know, once bitten, twice shy. There's just really been less interest in gold equities as a result of, of a number of these factors. You bring up many very interesting points there, and I think the one I really want to hone in on is what you said about investors, more specifically generalists. And this is what we hear from many people within the industry. They're saying we got to get generalists back into the sector to close that valuation gap. Maybe you can just speak to that and what you think the industry has to do to get the generalist investor back. Sure. Uh, uh, to your point, this is a question that our, our industry has been asking for some time now. And, you know, let's consider and let's talk about some of the metrics that are important to generalists. Investment returns and a time horizon that's not really 15 years out. Liquidity and the depth of the market, market capitalizations, accessible track record in the execution of growth. So if you think about the investment returns, you would think that gold miners should really outperform the gold price because we've got leverage to the gold price through operational performance. However, this hasn't really been the case. I talked about the GDX ETF having been launched in May 2006 and 
If you look at the performance of GDX since its inception, it has generated a dividend adjusted total return of just over 10%, which is less than a percent per year for the last 15 years. Over that same period, the gold price has increased from about $650 an ounce to $1,800, $1,900 an ounce. So that's almost a 200% total return over that same period, or somewhere between 6 and 7% per year. Operating margins have generally kept pace with the price of gold. So the track record of the industry from an investment returns perspective really has just not been there, even though we have seen a material increase in the price of gold over this period. From a time horizon perspective, we all know that the period of time between discovery and the first dollar of revenue that's generated from a discovery is now something like 15 years. You know, I was thinking about a comment that Robert Friedland made when the, um, the mine owned by Ivanhoe Mining and the DRC, the copper mine, uh, Kamoa Kakula went into production. And his comment was, overnight success, 27 years in the making. So that just gives you that uh, understanding that 15 years is just the average. Uh, and we can see a time horizon that's much longer than that. In some cases, in a lot of cases, uh, exploration does not necessarily lead to a deposit that's ultimately gonna be put into production, that's ultimately gonna generate positive free cash flow for investors. So we've had a mixed bag of success uh, in terms of investment returns. We have had a mis mixed bag of success and we've got quite long time horizons uh, that we are looking at in terms of value creation and generating free cash flow. From a liquidity and a depth of the market perspective, I've talked about this uh, valuation of the mineral inventory that's out there that's done by the World Gold Council of 13 trillion. That's just taking the reserves that are out there and multiplying that by the spot price. That is not looking at the market cap of our total industry combined, which is really only in the hundreds of billions. If you look at the combined potential market capitalization of Newmont Newcrest, that's estimated to be somewhere just over $50 billion. The market cap of Barrick is just over $40 billion. And these market capitalizations pale in comparison to other industries, be it technology companies or other industrial companies out there. And so our industry continues to be quite fragmented with a total market cap value of our industry being quite small. So the liquidity and the market depth pose some other challenges in terms of getting generalists back into our space. You raised some very interesting points about the generalist investor. And I'm curious to hear your views on how 
a mining company, whether it's a producer or developer, should be marketing themselves or pitching themselves to new investors? And maybe you can just touch on what you think their messaging should be. Because one of the things I notice is that now more than ever, the messaging seems to be focused on ESG and ESG only. Sure. And, you know, hopefully with the changes that have taken place in the industry over the last number of years, the delivering of balance sheets, um, the uh, reduction in costs, uh, the reduction in the price of gold that we use to estimate mineral, invent, uh, mineral reserves and mineral resources, with a return of capital that has taken place in the form of dividends and in the form of normal course issuer bids, certainly over the last couple of years by gold miners that have generated significant uh, cash flows from operations during that time period, hopefully we can present a better picture of our industry by focusing on these achievements over the last few years um, versus you know, what we accomplished uh, during the last cycle or or the first five years or so following that last cycle. And that is that we can create value beyond the gold price going up, that we can maintain discipline on costs, that our capital allocation is balanced and does include return of capital to shareholders, and that we can build on time and on budget, although I do think that we have some more work to do on this last point as an industry. Using valuation metrics that are, <clears throat> that investors, that generalist investors can understand or that are important to generalists, such as EBITDA, FCF, free cash flow, free cash flow per share versus ounces in the ground and talking about optionality would be some of the messaging, additional messaging that we need to deliver using performance metrics that are important to generalists and generalists can understand, again, such as EBITDA, such as FCF, versus how many ounces we've produced um, is adding to that messaging. Having a long-term strategy using these metrics. So for example, targeting the achievement of a certain FCF per share versus targeting getting to 1 million ounces of production uh, is building on that foundation of the messaging. Having a balanced capital allocation strategy. So we understand, and the generalists do understand, that this industry needs to invest to sustain ourselves, that our industry gets, uh, and our assets get smaller every day when we mine them. Part of the capital allocation has to go to debt reduction to the extent that there is still debt on the balance sheet. But part of the capital allocation does have to go to growth for the reasons that I mentioned. But also part of the capital allocation should also go to returning capital to investors. And therefore that balance in between allocating capital to these different uh, strategies is really uh, critical to keep in mind and to incorporate not only in the messaging but also in the strategy. And 
having clarity around these strategies and these policies is really important. So for example, a company might go through a period of growth where really all the capital is allocated to sustaining itself and to grow. Investors need that visibility to say, once I'm through this project build, what is my dividend policy gonna look like? And the fact that that company will actually be incorporating return of capital to investors in that capital allocation strategy. Daniela, as we wrap up, as the CEO of a gold producer, you have many stakeholders to answer to. What was the most challenging aspect of being a CEO of a gold producer? As you've talked about, there are a lot of stakeholders at play. There are shareholders, debt holders, employees, communities, the board, governments, and the jurisdictions where you operate. And each of these stakeholders has a different perspective based on their interest, based on their purpose or of investing, whether that's growth, safe haven, gold optionality, capital returns. You've got stakeholders with different risk appetites. You have different time horizons. You have different views on gold price and so on. If you find yourself in a situation that you need capital, Debt holders will always say, you know, you should really raise equity. The equity holders will say, you know what, or may say, you know what, I'm comfortable if you actually take on more debt. You may have communities that say, and that are focused on job creation and their particular community and the contribution that the company makes in that particular jurisdiction without really looking potentially at the financial condition of the company as a whole, or the fact that the company may actually be losing money and operating a particular mine in a particular jurisdiction. So when you look at how you ultimately not only protect the company and its assets, but also how you create value, management and the board have to, ba have to balance these interests of these different stakeholders and ultimately do what they collectively believe is in the best interest of the company for the long term. And that is not an easy job. And at the end of the day, of course, hindsight is always 2020. And you know, it's easy to look back when gold is at 2000 and say, you know, you should have done this or that. Uh, versus looking forward and saying, I've really got a plan for a rainy day when gold might be going to, you know, 15, 1600 and, and making sure that you've got, that you're navigating the company to meeting its strategy and successfully delivering on those catalysts that will ultimately create value. Daniela, that was a great discussion, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your insights from your mining career. Once again, thank you. Thank you very much. I uh, really enjoyed our discussion and, and thank you again for, uh, in, for the invitation.
Andrea, thank you very much for joining us today. Kinross Gold has six producing mines, producing over 2 million ounces a year. And in the interest of time, I want to focus on your two larger mines, which are Tassius and Paracatu. Let's start with Tassius, which is an, which is an open pit mine based in Mauritania. What was total production in 2022 and what, what was the cash cost at Tassius? That's right, Jimmy. As you said, we, we have you know six producing uh, mines uh, with 70% of that production coming from the Americas and looking at a different way, uh, two top tier assets, which you've mentioned, Paracatu and Tassius. And those, those um, assets together produce over a million ounces. Um, so uh, looking at Tassius specifically, in 2022, we produced 540,000 ounces at a cash cost of $730 per ounce. Um, and this year, we see that production increasing. So that we've guided in 2023 uh, for Tassius to produce 610,000 ounces at a cash cost of $680 per ounce. Uh, Tassius has, you know, a long life into the next decade. And, you know, we expect production to be um, in average over 500,000 ounces, uh, at least through 2030, and for production to continue out to 2035. Kinross has initiated many growth improvements at Tassius. When Tassius first went into production, throughput was only 8,000 tons a day, and that's increased significantly over the last few years. Can you just speak to some of these current improvements that are happening at Tassius and what they will mean for throughput and production in 2023? Sure. Tassius, you know, was our uh, second uh, largest producer in 2022, um, and it will become our largest, or we expect it to become our largest in, in 2023. Um, as you said, that's it has been about expanding the throughput. So we're in process of moving from 21,000 tons per day up to 24,000 tons per day. Um, and that's, you know, what we refer to as our 24K project. Um, we actually had a, about a two week shutdown in, uh, in the first quarter of this year to do some tie-ins for, uh, for the 24K project. Uh, we have another shutdown plan, um, for additional work, uh, in June. And then we expect to be ramped up to, to, you know, hint that 24,000 tons per day around the middle of the year. And then in the second half of the year to, to you know, ramp up to achieve uh, the 24,000 tons per day on a sustained basis, um, kind of by by the time we're exiting uh, 2023. Um, you know, this it's it's been a series of expansion projects and the 24K is really the optimal um, mill size that we see for Tassiest. Uh, so we're really excited about, about getting there um, and completing the project. We've also got uh, a solar project at Tassiest. It doesn't impact production, but you know we do expect that that project to you know improve our carbon footprint, um, reduce our operating costs, um, and it's also a good uh, return on capital. So um, that's uh, generally you know a 34 megawatt installation um, of solar power at Tassiest, and we expect that to be online before the end of this year. So that's a great overview of Tassiest and lots to look forward to. I want to move on now and examine Paracatu, which is an open pit mine located in Brazil. What was the annual production in 2022 and what was the cash cost at Paracatu? So production in 2022 was just under 580,000 ounces and the cash cost was $870 per ounce. And if we look at 2023, we're sort of expecting similar results from, from Paracatu. It really is... Um, a good stable producer in our portfolio. So we're expecting again around 580,000 ounces 
uh, for 2023 at a cash cost of, of around $890 per ounce. Um, and then, you know, looking beyond 2023, we do see Paracatu continuing to be that stable producer, producing into the next decade, um, production averaging, you know, over 500,000 ounces uh, through that period. And as you mentioned, Paracatu has been an excellent performer, very consistent, and you've been able to grow the resource and extend the mine life. Can you just provide an update on exploration activities and growth potential at Paracatu? Paracatu, uh, as you said, is an excellent cornerstone asset. Um, and as I noted, is you know well positioned, you know into the into the next decade. Um, the mine life currently extends to 2033 there, um, but we do continue to assess additional um, potential extensions beyond that time. Um, any exploration success there would would effectively extend the mine life um, rather than add to the production profile. We already have substantial production there, uh, and we feel that you know the mill is uh, right sized for. Um, for for what we've got at Paracat too, so we've got some time given that mine life out to 2033, but there are still some targets that we're uh, that we'll continue to pursue there. I guess for now, I would think about Paracat two as a 500,000 plus ounce producer, uh, as I said, out into out into the next decade, uh, with you know attractive margins in particular at today's gold prices. We've discussed your two largest mines, and I want to move the discussion to your development project, Great Bear, which is located in Red Lake, Ontario. And as a reminder to our viewers, Kinross acquired Great Bear Resources for $1.4 billion in 2022. And when in production, this is going to be a transformational asset for Kinross. And the initial resource on Great Bear was recently released. Can you just take us through the highlights of that resource? Sure. Um, as you mentioned, we acquired Great Bear uh, last year. So, you know, we announced the acquisition uh, in December of 2021. We closed in February of 20, uh, 2022. Um, and so in just one year from closing the acquisition, we did put out the initial resource, which was over 5 million ounces in total, including 2.7 million of indicated and 2.3 million uh, of, in the inferred category. It's important to also note that uh, that resource is largely within the first 500 meters uh, of drilling. Um, we have drilled beyond that to up to and beyond one kilometer, and we continue to see mineralization, high-grade mineral mineralization at those depths. Um, and so we expect that to continue to add to the resource, you know, years down the road. And as you mentioned, 2022 was a very busy year at Great Bear very active with the drilling in order to get that resource out in a timely manner. You drilled over 250 kilometers. What are your plans for 2023 in terms of drilling? And maybe you can just highlight any other plans you have for this coming year. Sure. I mean, you know, we last year we, we put out uh, drill result updates with each quarter after the acquisition. So we'll plan to do that again this year. Um, we know the market is always looking for information on on Great Bear, and we're certainly excited about it. Um, this year's plan is about 170 uh, kilometers of drilling, and that's you know partially exploration, partially infill uh, drilling to continue to add to the resource. So um, I would say you know you know look forward, look at our quarterly uh, look for our quarterly releases for updates on, on how the drilling is going, but. Um, you know, we we were excited about this uh, asset when we when we acquired it. Um, you know, we added, as you said, a substantial amount of drilling last year, and added to the drilling that was done before 
we acquired the asset, it's something like 560 kilometers of drilling um, before coming into 2023. And, you know, we were, we had followed uh, Great Bear for about three years before announcing the acquisition. Um, so we were pretty confident about what we saw there when we announced the acquisition and we're, you know, we're even more confident um, as we continue to do the work there. So, um, you know, we're, we're really excited about it and, and excited to continue to show uh, the market what we're seeing in terms of the drilling there. You just mentioned a very interesting point that you were following Great Bear for three years before Ken Ross acquired it. And I'm just curious, how many names would you follow on an ongoing basis? We typically look at the landscape. We have a, you know, we have a bit of a program where sometimes we actually invest in uh, junior equities, uh, junior mining equities. Um, that's typically, you know, when we like uh, a property and like a management team and we see an opportunity um, with Great Bear, we weren't invested in it, but we followed it as we would in, in some of these other instances um, where we, you know, believe in the asset, believe in the management team, um, and sometimes we can sort of provide assistance. Um, and so that's the way in which we were sort of following and uh, following the, the drill program um, at Great Bear for you know multiple years before actually, you know, um, announcing the acquisition. And Andrea, with so much drilling going on at, at Great Bear, the drilling contractors must be very happy with Kinross. <laughs> Look, when we started, it was all about getting, uh, you know, uh, how many drills could we get on site and how many drill operators could we get there. So I think we're up to um, we're up to the right number at this point. Uh, but that was a bit of a uh, that was that was an effort at, at the start when we first acquired the asset as well. You mentioned the initial resource was five million ounces. I'm going to put you on the spot now, Andrea. But where do you see it going? Uh, look, you know, there's only so much we can we can say here in terms of our estimates. But but we do we and others have made an analogy to the Hemlone line. Um, and Hemlone line has produced you know over 20 million ounces over multiple decades. Um, and we see a lot of similarities between Hamlo and Great Bear, and you know others have also pointed to some of the similarities as we started to uh, as we started to provide you know some of the some of the drill results uh, that we've seen along the way. So um, that's all I'll say on that point. At this, you mentioned that you're going to continue on with drilling in 2023, but maybe you can give us a sense of what else you and your team are going to accomplish at Great Bear in 2023, and give us a sense of the timeline what's going to happen in 2024 and beyond and maybe when you will make a construction decision. Other work that we have ongoing um, and looking at our timeline um, to answer a couple of your questions together here at once, I guess working backwards, we've talked about production uh, in 2029 um, and we get questioned a lot about whether we can shorten that timeline. Uh, that timeline is, is based on a two-year construction period starting in 2020 seven and working back on that, um, one of the key factors in the timeline is the permitting process. Um, and the estimate that we've made for permitting is is based on, you know, what we've seen for other similar projects or what others are anticipating for similar projects that are that are also um, underway. And so, you know, that's what we we th the permitting timeline that we've allowed for is realistic, um, not overly conservative. Um, and we don't really have a lot of control over the process. So um, what we will do is make sure that we've, you know, got um, all of our uh, all of our information ready uh, ahead of time as early as possible. 
Um, we're, you know, developing good working relationships with the First Nations uh, to make sure that we have a good understanding of their needs. Um, and, um, you know, I would say that if we do happen to get the permits ahead of what the timeline we have in the schedule, we'd be ready to start construction early, but we just can't count on that at this point. Andrea, that's a great overview of your various operations. I want to move the discussion now toward your balance sheet and capital allocation. Will you focus on buybacks, dividends, or capbacks? How will you allocate capital in the coming year? Uh, well, at gold prices we've seen over the last couple of weeks, uh, we would expect to to do all of those things and also um, pay down a bit of debt and, and improve our balance sheet. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll go through each of those uh, each of those items and provide a little bit of context. So, in terms of you know, reinvestment in the business. We expect to spend about a billion dollars of, of capital this year, and that's split roughly 50-50 on sustaining capital and growth capital. We have 500 million of, of notes coming due in 2024. Um, I mentioned previously that we expect to refinance those to, to push the term out this year. Um, and so that is the plan uh, as we sit here today. Um, but we will look to repay the amounts that we currently have drawn on our credit facility, um, our revolving credit facility. And then we've got a billion dollar term loan that we um, took out to finance the cash portion of the Great Bear transaction. And so, you know, that matures in 2025, but it does have flexible repayment terms. So, um, you know, that would be kind of next in line to, to look to, uh, to start addressing when, when we do have the cash to do that. Um, and, you know, last but not least um, is uh, returning capital to shareholders. Uh, looking back at 2022, we returned about $450 million to shareholders, including $300 million in the form of share um, repurchases and $150 million um, in our sustainable um, or sustained uh, dividend. Um, so our regular uh, dividend is uh, $0.03 cents a share quarterly. We expect to continue that, you know, in 2023 and for the foreseeable future through the state through um, through the gold cycle. Um, we've layered onto that a buyback program. Uh, we started that back in the second half of 2021, and then we enhanced the program um, in September of 2022, which drove the 300 million that uh, that we uh, returned through buybacks uh, last year. For this year, that program now turns to uh, basically formula-based. It's uh, dynamic, so you know, based on cash that we're generating, um, and uh, it's it's and the formula is seventy-five percent of what we're calling excess cash. And excess cash is defined as free cash after the needs of the business. Uh, so you know, after all of our capex, after interest, uh, and after dividends, and then seventy-five percent of that number would go to uh, share repurchases. So, you know, it can be pretty meaningful at higher gold prices. Um, but we're also protecting our balance sheet um, for any downside. Uh, we've got some guardrails in there. For example, um, if our net debt to EBITDA ratio um, is, you know, about 1.7 times, then, you know, there's no buyback. So as we look out to this year, um, you know, we expect to be executing on the buyback, but more geared toward the second half, just given the uh, the nature of our production profile and cash flow profile that we expect for 2023. Andrea, I want to move the discussion now toward valuation. As you mentioned, things are going very well for Ken Ross at your operations at Great Bear. 
you're cashed up, you have a strong balance sheet, you're returning cash to shareholders, but yet the stock is trading at a discount to many of your comps. What will you and your team do in the coming year to close that valuation gap? I think, you know, the number one thing uh, on our minds at the moment is just getting back to our track record of delivering on our commitments, delivering on guidance. We pride ourselves as having a strong track record um, of meeting guidance. We were, you know, at nine consecutive years of delivering, uh, delivering on our guidance. Uh, and then we ran into some challenges in sort of second half of 2021 and, and throughout 2022. And those were, you know, largely related, well, related to a, a couple of different areas. So, you know, there's some macro issues um, in terms of inflation, um, geopolitical issues, as and we also had some operational challenges. We're really committed to getting back to delivering on those commitments. And so I think that's kind of the first step of of uh, trying to you know address evaluation and 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 hopefully that will make a difference as the market starts starts to see us coming back to that. The second thing uh, I would point to is is Great Bear. Um, the market continues to be hungry for information on Great Bear. Um, you know it will take some time, but I think as we continue to develop um, and and we continue to provide drill results and any other information we can as we go here uh, over the next few years after. And believe that will also help. I do think there's continued upside in our shares following the divestiture of Russia. Uh, Russia was a great cash contributor for us for many years, um, but we do believe that it it was a bit of a drag on our valuation um, through that time as well. Uh, and so having exited Russia um, and also exited Ghana last year, as we sit here today, we've got a production profile that is seventy percent coming from the Americas. Uh, along, you know, with two top-tier assets and a world-class development project, all of which we've, we've talked about today. Um, and so with that as um, our platform, we do believe that there's certainly um, upside to the valuation that we that we have today on our shares. Uh, and I think we're well-positioned. Um, we're well-positioned for 2023. We're coming into 2023 um, we expect to continue developing, uh, drilling and developing at Great Bear. We expect to you know, deliver on our uh, increased production this year. We've got about a 5% production increase to 2.1 million ounces this year. Um, we expect to you know, continue to improve our balance sheet and continue to return capital to shareholders through both the dividend and the buyback. Um, so I think all of those factors together leave us in a, in a great spot to um, um for that valuation to be addressed in, in 2023 and beyond. Andrea, as we wrap up, you provided a lot of detail of what's happening on your various operations, but maybe you can just summarize as to what investors can expect in terms of news flow in the coming months from Ken Ross. Sure. I, you know, next up is uh, our Q1 results in our AGM, which are um, all around sort of May 9th, May 10th. Um, that will be, you know, a regular quarterly result. Uh, including updates on all our operations and projects. Uh, we've talked, you know, about uh, our, our two biggest assets and our and our development project uh, at Great Bear. Um, there's there's other uh, catalysts coming. Uh, we have La Coipa in Chile that continues to ramp up, and that's going great. Um, and then we have our Manicho project in Alaska um, that you know is progressing, and we expect first production there in 2024. So those are other assets. 
um, for example, that um, that you'll see updates on uh, throughout this year, just um, likely along with our quarterly press releases. Andrea, that was a great update on the various operations at Kinross, and we look forward to the ongoing news flow at your Great Bear Project. Once again, thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Hi, John. Thank you very much for joining us today. Gold has had a great start to the year of 2023. It's up approximately 10% on the year. Much of it has to do with turmoil in the financial markets and trouble with regional banks in the U.S. But 2022 was a strong year for gold demand. And a big part of that was central bank buying. And a large part of what the World Gold Council does is working with central banks throughout the world. And I want to start here. How many central banks does the World Gold Council work with and what sort of services do you offer them? Sure. Um, and I just say that it's great, it's great to be talking to you again, Jimmy. We deal with about 95 or have relationships with about 95% of the world's central banks. Um, and basically, we speak to everybody that we want to, apart from those that are sanctioned. So uh, and we obviously follow the, the, the international sanctions regime. And as you can imagine, there's a couple more central banks have been sanctioned in the, in the last 12 months following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So the services that we provide to them are those of education and information. So we don't sell any products at the World Gold Council, certainly not to central banks. But what we do do is we give them information which helps them make decisions about how much gold they should own, how to go about buying it, how to store it, how to refine it if it's necessary, um, how to make use of it um, in through lending or swap transactions, and then also how to account for it. So we are a one-stop shop for the central banks who want to improve their knowledge about gold. Of course, lots of central banks already uh, are very experienced in owning and managing their gold reserves, but there are many, particularly the emerging market central banks that don't hold very much gold, that don't have as much experience there. And then finally, I think the the the, the most useful information that we can give to them is what the central bank community thinks about gold. So to that end, we conduct an annual survey uh, of central banks about all aspects of gold. Um, and we also have a conference once a year as well, which allows uh, central banks to get together in person in a closed door meeting. So no press, no bankers. Um, and they can ask their questions. They can discuss case studies. We bring in external and have internal speakers speaking about the gold market. So it's a great service that we do. It's proved to be very popular. Uh, and all I would say is on the basis of the conversations we've had with central banks, plus the surveys, plus the, uh, the conferences, is that there has been growing interest in adding gold to reserves uh, over the last few years. Um, and I think that's materializing in the purchases that we're seeing reported. That conference directed at central banks would be a very interesting one to attend, I'm sure. But how, uh, you said that's held once a year. Where is it held, and how many central banks would show up for it? Um, we've had it. We had it virtually, obviously, for the last couple of years, up until 2022, uh, because of COVID. Um, last year, it was in in uh, in New York at Columbia University. We've had it in uh, uh, in Beijing. We've had it in Cambridge in the UK. So it travels around the world. 
and uh, we're looking to do it in Europe uh, later this year. And yeah, I smiled when you said it would be interesting. Yes, some aspects of it are. Some aspects of it are very dull and dry. If you want to hear about all the different ways that central banks can, can account for gold, there's a real section on there that's uh, unmissable. Um, and I'm sure the central bankers find it very useful. And I struggle sometimes to stay awake in it because I'm not an accountant. John, let's move on now and look at gold demand in 2022 and try to determine if that demand will continue on through 2023. But what was the total gold demand in 2022 and how did this compare to previous years? Yeah, it was about the best demand we've seen in a decade, somewhere around 4,700 tonnes uh, and, and represented a decent increase on what we saw in 21 and, and 2020. Now, part of that was as we come out of the pandemic, um, we've seen jewellery demand recover a lot in 2021, but in 2022 it was primarily two areas of strength, one of which was central bank purchases and the other uh, was bar and coin demand. So investment by retail uh, around the world, emerging market and developed market of small bars and coins. So of the 4,700 tons, how much of that was purchased by central banks? We estimate about 1,136 tons from central banks, um, which is the record purchase uh, for any year that we have data going back to antiquity. And what was the big driver for central banks? It's tricky to know. I mean, one of the things that we don't get in terms of information from central banks is necessarily why they have chosen to buy. Some they do, some, some publish um, you know, an explanation in an annual report or potentially a press release, but others buy it relatively quietly. Based on the survey work that we've done um, over the years and the conversations that we've had with central banks, I'd say that the, the predominant reason is diversification. And in the case of the emerging market buyers of gold, they don't have very much gold in their, in their international reserves, uh, certainly compared to the developed market central banks. And as a consequence, what we've seen over the last decade is emerging market central banks adding gold to their reserves, slowly increasing the proportion that gold makes up from them. But I think the second thing that happened last year, uh, which may have triggered this increase in central bank purchases, is the sanctions on the central bank of Russia that were put in place by Western nations following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I think what this has done is this has made central bankers and governments realize that the, the, the reserve assets that central banks have may not be as accessible uh, as they would like them to be, particularly if they do something to materially offend the West. So it's all very well having trillions of dollars of FX reserves if those reserves are in, uh, in the US clearing system or the Eurozone clearing system, because they can be you know, seized or locked up or, or, or prevented from moving really at the stroke of a pen. Um, whereas gold, if you own gold in your own country, then that's an asset that is nobody else's liability. And, and you can do with that what you wish. Admittedly, Russia can't sell its gold into the Western markets at the moment, but there are plenty of other places where Russia could be selling its gold if it, if it needed to. So that's an asset, and about 22% of Russia's international reserves are held in gold. That's an asset that they still control and can still do things with, unlike about half of the foreign exchange reserves. So I think that's been a major factor in making emerging market central banks think about what they hold 
and has probably accelerated the purchases of gold as a consequence. And do we know what central banks were buying gold? We know some of the central banks that were buying gold. Normally, um, we know pretty much all of the transactions that are taking place by central banks. We produce a monthly report of central bank gold uh, holdings and changes in those holdings, which is based off data that central banks disclose to the IMF. Each quarter, though, we get additional information from, from our data uh, partners, Metals Focus, who give us an estimate of overall uh, sales and purchases uh, by central banks. Now, that includes all the disclosed purchases, but there are some central banks that don't report on time, uh, and there are some central banks that actually don't report their changes in gold holdings at all. So there's always a bit of a difference between the quarterly numbers and the three individual months that make up that quarter. But in 2022, that difference got really, really large. So we estimate um, that, that, that the purchases by central banks, particularly in the second half of the year, the vast majority of it was actually undisclosed. So we don't know who is behind it. Now, conversations with Metals Focus uh, on this, and, and we spent a lot of time in, in interrogating them to make sure that they were comfortable with their, with their estimates. Uh, they, they told us a few things. First of all, it's more than one central bank um, and uh, that it, they are uh, emerging market central banks. But as to who they are, you know, it, you know, it's up to individuals to, to make speculation because we, do, we don't speculate on, on the non-disclosed activities, at least not publicly. We spend a lot of time internally thinking about it, as you can imagine. And now that we are through the first quarter of 2023, has this trend with central bank buying continued? It certainly has. Uh, I mean, one of the features that we saw late last year was the People's Bank of China disclosing purchases of gold in November and December. That's continued into the first quarter uh, of 2023. So that's hugely significant. Um, and similarly, we've seen a, a, an announcement of a purchase from a developed market central bank, which was um, the, uh, the, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, who announced a decent sized purchase in Q1. So that combined with the other activity that we've seen, so regular purchases from India and Turkey, et cetera, I expect to see the final numbers for Q1 for central bank purchases looking very healthy. So that's a good overview of what's happening with central banks. Now, what about investment demand? What's happening there? Mm. Investment demand is a really interesting one. Um, a lot of focus by the media, by the sell side, and to a certain extent by ourselves, is what's happening in exchange-traded funds. So ETFs sold uh, a total of about 110 tons of gold in 2022, and that attracted an enormous amount of attention and, and, and lots of speculation about what's going on there and talking about disinvestment in gold. But what people don't seem to recognize is that there's a tremendous amount of bar and coin demand going on. So more than 1,200 tonnes of, of bar and coin demand last year, which really puts the ETF outflows um, in, in perspective. So what have we seen so far in 2023? Well, bar and coin demand has remained firm, perhaps not quite as strong as we saw um, in 2022, or at least that was the story through, um, through January and February. Um, ETF investors continued in January and February to reduce their holdings in gold. But as the banking crisis uh, has reared up, um, we've seen um, a strengthening from what we hear of, of retail bar and coin demand, and ETF flows have turned positive 
certainly in the uh, around the middle of March, we we saw that uh, uh, that net ETF activity had flipped positive. Um, and look, if the banking crisis continues to intensify, then I would expect this to continue. And with what we're seeing in global financial markets and also these positive moves in the gold price, I'm curious what investors are saying. You and your team travel extensively throughout the world, speaking at various conferences. What are you hearing from institutional investors, hedge funds, family offices? Mm. I mean, it's been an interesting 12 months. Um, I think there was a, quite a lot of disappointment in some camps about gold's performance uh, in 2022. The, probably the most common question I was getting on my travels is, why isn't gold higher um, with inflation so high? Um, and I think there's some very clear reasons why that's, you know, that's the case. If you look at the strength of the US dollar last year, if you look at the moves in interest rates, gold actually was flat on the year and really held up tremendously well, probably assisted to a degree by the central bank buying that we saw. The more thoughtful question I got late last year um, in 2022 was why isn't gold lower? And the reason people were thinking gold might be lower was because of the strength of the US dollar and because of the, the degree to which interest rates have gone up. Now, some of those reasons we, you know, we've discussed already, central bank purchases, retail investment. Um, but I do think that in an environment where inflation is materially higher than we've seen really for the last, uh, get on for like 30, 40 years, that a lot of the relationships that people are relying on to tell them where the gold price should be, particularly looking at real US interest rates, don't work as well as they used to. So what are we hearing now from investors? Well, certainly a lot of interest in gold through the first quarter, and I've traveled extensively as usual. Um, a lot of people who had been holding negative views on gold um, have abruptly changed uh, their minds. And, and just today, I was talking to, to a, a hedge fund manager who I've known for many years, and he quite controversially had said, well, controversially in my eyes, had said that he was happy to be short gold um, in January or February. Um, expecting it to trade materially lower, not as a, a major component of his portfolio, but just as part of his overall risk. And he, and he came back to me today and said, okay, fine, I was clearly wrong. And uh, what's going on? What do I need to do to, uh, to think about gold going forward? So that's a good example, I think, of how uh, some of the faster money um, has been changing uh, its mind. We're also getting a lot of uh, interest from, um, from family offices, uh, from high net worth individuals particularly. And I think they're looking at inflation. I think they're looking at the banking crisis. Um, I think they're looking at some of the, uh, the geopolitical tensions that might lie out there this year. And they, they've used the last three, six months as an opportunity, I think, to top up on their, on their gold investments to some degree. You bring up a lot of very interesting points there. And as you said, in 2022, many investors, including myself, were disappointed with the the performance of gold, but interest rates in the US dollar were major, was a major headwind. And we've seen the Fed lift rates nine times. They did so again in February and also in March. But in spite of that, and in spite of the US dollar going higher against most major currencies, the gold price seems to be very strong, very robust. It kind of feels like it's different this time. Would you agree? It certainly feels different. I mean, typically you would expect gold to do really well once the Fed starts cutting, so when it comes towards the end of end of its interest rate cycle, uh, its interest rate hiking cycle, and of course we're not there yet, 
Um, and there's a lot of debate about how many more times the Fed will hike and how long they'll keep interest rates high. But, you know, we're closer to the end than the beginning. And for gold to be holding up well, even before the banking crisis, I mean, we were trading at $1,800, $1,900 an ounce. That looks as if it could set uh, the floor for a material uh, move higher um, once the Fed moves into a cutting cycle. So I'm, I'm really excited. And I think that gold actually did really well last year. I mean, going back to the inflation story, in a way, you've got your inflation performance back in 2020. Why 2020? Well, that's when central bank balance sheets were expanding massively. That's when, when fiscal spending was expanding massively. And that set, set the, the economy up for inflation once we came out of COVID. So in a way, gold anticipated all that inflation that was coming. Uh, and if you held gold through 2020, you know, you've got about a 25% return. So I'm not so disappointed with the performance of gold um, last year. And I think the potential could actually be quite exciting in the next year or two. John, as we wrap up, investors have many different asset classes to choose from. Why should gold be a part of an investment portfolio? We think gold should be a strategic allocation to an investment portfolio, which is basically saying we think gold should be in your portfolio all the time. How much gold you have depends really on what else is in your portfolio, but generally it works out at somewhere between 5 and 10% with the more risky assets you have in your portfolio, the higher the proportion of gold you need to diversify that. Now, why should it be in a portfolio? Well, if you look at the history, it's delivered returns, not just during the bad times, but over the long term as well. But it's, it's, it's diversification benefits, which are probably the most valuable. So adding gold to a portfolio increases the risk adjusted return of that portfolio, reduces the drawdowns of that portfolio. Um, so it's a really good thing to have in there. I think the other thing I'd say as well is that gold is good for when unexpected things happen. The coronavirus pandemic is a great example. It was until November of 2020, the best performing asset class until people started to buy the recovery. But if you'd held gold um, run in, running into the beginning of 2020, you, you would have done well and it would have benefited your portfolio a lot. Similarly, the banking crisis, which, which started in the first quarter of 2023, Gold's performed really well in an environment where equities um, have been very weak. So gold should, we think, always be part of your portfolio. And even if you, you, you think the price has done well or that the price may be relatively high, this insurance that you get against you know, unexpected items in, in your Bloomberg inbox is, uh, makes it a really interesting uh, uh, asset to hold in your portfolio. Great points, John, and I want to thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your insights on gold demand and also what central banks are doing with respect to gold. Once again, thank you. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Well, that concludes another conference, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today. I also want to thank our corporate sponsor, Sprott Inc., a global leader in precious metals and energy transition investments. Be sure to follow us on YouTube and also follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Once again, thank you for your support.